Total Party Thrill is brought to you by... Sponsor. Sponsor. Really wants these ads to be organic. (laughs) (laughs) You probably shouldn't read the blocking directions. Double Centurions Lounge in New York City. I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Yishan. And welcome to episode 200 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're celebrating 10 score episodes with a mega mailbag where we're answering all of your questions, both technical and inappropriately personal. Later, the modern Major General presents his verbal resume in the Character Creation Forge. So, episode 200 of Total Party Thrill is brought to you by our friends at Kobold Press. Empire of the Ghouls is the first 5th edition campaign from Kobold Press for characters levels 1 to 14, taking your heroes deep into the realms of the undead. You can explore a kingdom of terror and blood ruled by vampires, and then far below the earth in the Underdark, explore a mighty empire of ghouls. It's really the best place to put it, because, you know, if you put it on, on top of the earth, paladins tend to find it. Yeah, paladins aren't real good at going into the Underdark and coming back out, so... It's true. And pro tip, uh, Divine Sense has a range of, I think, 60 feet. Mm-hmm. So really, start your Empire of the Ghouls about 70 feet underground. Isn't it also blocked by, like, everything? Stone and lead. <laughs> I mean, I know it's blocked by lead because I read Order of the Stick. <laughs> and I'm a Belcar fan. All right, so this massive 5e campaign will include new Underdark lore as well as tons of undead monsters, magic, and more with both an adventure book and a player's guide. Filled with things like, hey, dig a little deeper, friend. Oh, is that the guide? The guide is just dig more? Oh, yeah, obviously. Like, like pro tips? <laughs> <It's>, yes. <laughs> okay. It's, you don't need a sunlight or air. Don't worry about provisions because you're just eating people. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I think the player's guide probably has more like, you know, player options and feats and items and things like that you know a little lore about the about the setting and the empire and those sorts of things but yeah maybe it does just have pro tips oh okay it has build build options and things like that then what good is it to me shane yeah what good is it don't shovel with your back you know (laughs) right always lift lift with your back all right all right so if that interests you the kickstarter for empire of the ghouls ends today nope that's tomorrow friday (laughs) may 31st (laughs) It is already funded, it is blowing away stretch goals, and you can find out more at www.cobaltpress.com slash kickstarters. So, regular listeners will notice that we are taking a break from our usual format. Dynasty Unwarranted is coming back next week. So, what are we doing this week, then? Shane, we are drinking, of course, because this it, is a mailbag episode. It's a day that ends in Y? Oh. <laughs> oh, oh, right, yes. <laughs> because that's how we cope? <laughs> I mean, I will say 200 episodes. Um, listeners, that means that I have had to talk to Shane every week for the last 200 weeks. Oh, wait. No. Later on, somebody did the math. Uh, it's sad. <laughs> it's, the, number, the numbers don't look good for us. No. <laughs> We're hitting that point where it's like, guys, you really invested a lot into this, and I'm proud of you, but if you keep doing this for much longer, I'm going to start to pity you. Right. <laughs> This went from cool hobby to sad hobby, Uh-oh. somewhere around episode 120. <laughs> Once we hit a gross, it became a little gross, right? Right, exactly. All right, so because this is a mailbag episode, 
we are drinking. However, uh, in contrast to previous mailbag episodes, we're actually drinking something pretty good. Yeah, normally we drink lousy flavored liquors like that eggnog something the pumpkin spice uh baileys Baileys. that's what it was yeah because it was like halloween time oh yeah Uh, and or we drink like things that make puns right and we're also we're recording this on memorial day uh 2019 which means i've been sick for the past week and then it was memorial day weekend so i decided to power through it by drinking so my voice is shot very smart very smart my immune system is shot my my energy levels are shot so this is this is exactly what i needed was whatever's in this glass and tell us about it please ishan yeah shane speaking of shots uh this is not something that you should do a shot of but we will of course begin that way uh this is because this is episode 200 i have brought a 200 dollars bottle of tequila oh okay yeah. all right that is gross misappropriation of funds <laughs> yes i have in fact surprised myself don't worry shane i didn't pay for it okay good <laughs> perfect misappropriation of funds <laughs> yes well in fact only half of this bottle is mine oh great so... <laughs> you brought a hundred dollars worth of 200 dollars tequila great actually i brought 200 uh dollars worth of a bottle of tequila that is $240. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yes, it was given to me and a guy at work. And I am, well, I stole the whole bottle. So Perfect. So here it is. Uh, it is called Tears of Llorona. Okay. Which I believe is a Mexican legend about a scorned woman who um, is left by her conquistador lover. And sh- so she kills all of their children and then herself and now wanders as a weeping ghost. Oh, God. This is going to be terrible oh i don't know all right all right so this is uh an extra añejo aged for five years uh, by a man called herman gonzalez who apparently is uh descended from uh, the first president of mexico or maybe a president of mexico i'm not actually sure okay uh and it is aged for five years in barrels of like barrels that were used to age bourbon uh, scotch and sherry, and then it's all mixed together in a nice blend. Yeah, I mean it has it has a very whiskey look to it. Like it's a very dark tequila. This is I, I actually thought this was like a coffee tequila when you showed me the bottle. Oh God, well that that would be appropriate for a mailbag episode. Yeah, yeah I could use it. <laughs> I've had coffee Patron actually. Uh, it's great. Yeah, it doesn't taste like tequila. That's why it's so good. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is like a, a dark amber. Um, it. I mean, we're bourbon drinkers, right? For the most part, mm-hmm. uh, and this. This has strong notes of that, although when you first open the bottle, yeah, you, you can get a, a whiff of agave. I mean, I like tequila, although I usually drink, like, white ones and, and certainly not, like, resposados or añejos, but... Um, All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. We're do beginning it, with, it, with a delayed. shot. We're beginning with an overly expensive shot. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, no. Oh, boy. Oh. Oh. Okay. Ah. <laughs> I feel like that was <clears throat> oh. remarkably smooth. Uh, yeah, my first thought is I Given. definitely should not have wasted that as a shot. Yeah, no, oh. no, the guy who gave it to me said definitely don't do shots of this. No, that guy was an. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, all right, fill it up again. Yep. Give me the bottle. Here we go. Uh, oh yeah, this is the type of bottle that comes with its own little like stopper, like you yeah, know, swivel art- stopper. Yeah, artisanal yeah. water bottles at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. All right. Whew. I'm just um, going to drink the rest of this on the rocks, but whew, that's a wicked I'm, cold. I'm going to I'm going to sip it carefully. I am 
Uh, I'm ooh. still shaking. This is great. <laughs> I'm actually really glad neither of us uh, showered. The The room right now really stinks. That's us. <laughs> but it's good because I'm again sweating because of this. Mm-hmm. We're, I think we're usually better at taking shots. Yeah. This is... It was good. Okay. All right. I'm ready. <laughs> All Let's right. Do it. Here we go. All right. So first off, 200 episodes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners, uh, all of our patrons on Patreon, all of our Discord friends. Uh, I didn't expect that we would get, I don't know, any Discord friends yeah, exactly. <laughs> actually when we opened that. I figured it was just going to be us and our home group like it had been for the past year. <laughs> yeah. We, had, we were like, hey, do you mind if like, I don't know, four people show up in this Discord? <laughs> yeah. It'll probably be nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and now the home group is like, oh, yeah, I muted everything. I, there's too much activity. So I will say uh, I do want to give a shout out to uh, a Discord friend who just recently joined, Blinth, who is currently biking, like on a bicycle from Washington, D.C. down to, where did he say it was? To Florida, which is, okay, I've driven that and it is too long. Yeah, it's a brutal drive. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. And I think he said uh, as of last week he was in North Carolina. So my guess is he's, what, hit Georgia by now, probably? Uh, yeah, maybe he's in, like, the low country, South Carolina. Oh, God, keep keep pedaling. Pedal faster. <laughs> yeah. I don't know exactly how that route goes, but I assume it's not straight through the Appalachians. I assume that he's not on uh, 95 the whole way. Right. <laughs> no, he sent, he put, posted a picture on Discord, which was uh, a very nice photo of what looks like a, a pleasant country road. Yep, and uh, given that it is Memorial Day and he's also a Marine Corps veteran, uh, we just want to say thank you um, to all of our listeners for their service as well. All right, Shane, let's dig into this mailbag, shall we? All right, Uh, so first one comes in from Darren. Darren asks, Do you have any advice for running a campaign with a D&D style party that includes the ruler of a nation as opposed to each player running their own nation? Do you have any recommendations for a system to abstract taxes and warfare and magical research? Are there any interesting campaign arcs that will give players the opportunities to use their high-level abilities that aren't just going to war with NPC nations? I mean, why wouldn't you want to just go to war with NPC nations? I mean, that is the, kind of the charm of ruling a nation, is that you can send thousands of people to war, right? <laughs> Conquest! And no blood on your actual hands. <laughs> right. And you don't have to worry about, like, rolling those dice or remembering if you used your second wind or not. Right. That's their job. Okay, but... Uh, there are options mechanically. Um, we covered this in Birthright uh, when we did the Birthright campaign setting, but um, the second edition Birthright campaign had a bunch of rules around nation building, basically, and how to manage a nation. Um, it, when we played Birthright, we did it as we were kind of a council of regents ruling a single nation, mm-hmm. so it's definitely doable. Um, and that is a pretty straight adaptation, actually. It's not really that hard to move it to fifth edition you just adjust some dcs yeah and and i think those who've played the terrible birthright video game um uh, i believe uh, you Gorgon's alliance yeah you ran one country like as the player and then the the ai was running all the other countries right mm-hmm. um and that is often how an actual like tabletop birthright game runs so darren is asking like sort of the opposite of that right so uh our gm jim uh sort of like uh focused way in on just one country and we were all like part of the ruling council of that one country you can play a game where it revolves around being i guess the rulers of a nation right like so one person could be the regent and everyone else is an advisory council or you know everyone else who's in the court right um the 
the child who is the heir but has particular duties and the vizier and like the court wizard, even the court jester, right? The captain of the guard, all those sorts of things you can play. I actually prefer to do it the way that, Shane, you set up in Dynasty Unwarranted originally, which was the person in charge, the rogue trader, uh, was... Absent. Was a, yeah, exactly. An NPC. <laughs> right. Right? And, like, even if, even if like, the rogue trader had been there, you would have just sort of, like, told us what they did. But like, so we, we were sort of ruling in his stead, right? Stewards, stewards of Gondor. Yeah, he was kind of a rubber stamping. Yeah, exactly. So we still got to call all the shots, even though we weren't technically in charge. I think that can work better at a table sometimes because it prevents that friction of like the one player who is who has like the final say over what actually happens being able to overrule other people although some people might enjoy that kind of like give and take retention it also means that like if the queen can't make it this week because like you know she has to work late that like the game doesn't stall Mm -hmm. so i think in terms of recommendations for that system right like what makes birthright work is the idea of kind of having two modes of play like you have the adventure mode of play in which you go out into the world and raid a dungeon or kill a monster or whatever and then you have the sort of um nation mode of play where you're you know dealing with royal decrees or you know negotiating peace treaties or collecting taxes or all those types of things so you kind of like i think it works really well if you separate those two things and allow equal play time for both um so any system where you kind of have those two modes of play i think is really good for this and that's what draws me to um blades in the dark or any of its derivative systems like i'm pretty sure there's a hack of blades in the dark that addresses this i don't know what it is but i'm confident that anybody could do this to hack this because blades in the dark already has the sort of like downtime crew building activities as well as the heist and job activities um so if you just take that crew building and you turn it into nation building you can see the two modes of play like at work um you know you limit some of your action economy about how much you can do in a given month or quarter or however often you want to rule the nation and then you make sure that you carve out time for them to go do their adventuring and play D anD. Yeah, um, there are fifth edition conversions for Birthright that are easily Googleable um, that we relied on pretty heavily. I'll also say, like, you don't even necessarily need to go out of your way to find uh, a system out there. You can sort of view running a country as having two different kinds of um, antagonists. I guess one would be other nations. Mm-hmm. Um, that you are sort of dealing with almost like characters, right? Like yep. the the person who runs that country, obviously you can like parlay with or, or talk to or have negotiations with, but also the country itself kind of has a personality uh, that can clash or like ally with the personality of your country, no yep. matter who's necessarily in charge. You also have this sort of audience slash antagonist of the people in your own country who you need to like parlay with as well and like mollify when bad things happen um and like keep life generally good any kind of system where you're sort of determining how your actions are going to affect the people and how that then reflects on their morale and support for you no matter what your system of government is right it could be democracy it could be absolute monarchy the people still need to be happy generally um will will inform what happens within the game 
and then uh, in addition to that, I think you can you want to add like a sort of Sim City type thing where you do and Birthright does this. You sort of roll randomly for events that nobody can control, or you know, interventions or acts of God, natural mm-hmm. disasters, plagues, that sort of sort of thing. So then, I think the last part of this was what are the interesting campaign arcs that give players opportunities to use high level abilities. Uh, that aren't just going to war. So in this case, um, what you want is some type of multinational threat that you probably aren't able to deal with just by rallying all of your allies together, right? Like um, the Day of Mourning is a good example in Eberron where nobody is quite sure how to address it, but uncovering the truth of the Day of Mourning might be really important to your nation's security. So if you were running Breland, you would have a very vested interest in figuring it out and probably not sharing the outcome with everybody around you. So that gives you something kind of top secret, high level, very dangerous, that really you're the only people capable of addressing. That's the type of thing that you want to be drawing your plot hooks and and sort of campaign arcs around. Or maybe you are sharing it with, like, your best buddies over in Lazar, you know? Like, hey, Pirate Kings, how you doing? Well, sure. I mean, that's a, you know, a little bit of an operational security risk. <laughs> but, yeah, I totally could do that, too. But you want everyone to know about it. The best person to tell is the, is the Pirate Kings. The point is you can't outsource the activity of chasing down this problem, you know? Like, that is, it's the type of thing that requires high-level like super powerful adventurers to go address and and that's who you are right and that multinational threat can even be something like a natural disaster right like i think and then you want to prod your players or players you want to like make sure that other people are aware that the optimal um tactic may not be the one that you're necessarily used to like in our birthright game uh, I think the most useful spell that my high-level druid has been using has been plant growth, mm-hmm. which with like the eight-hour ritual version, where for in a one-mile radius, like for the next year, there will be a bountiful harvest. Right. Yeah, prosperity. That's what we're looking for. <laughs> right. I was like, every every moment of downtime, I'm casting this spell somewhere in our country. <laughs> yeah. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna pitch this style of game, uh, and particularly Birthright's rule system, um, if you've ever wanted to argue about taxes, <laughs> how much to levy and how how to distribute them between the various provinces. Boy, do I have a game for you. I'm Federalism just... <laughs> and states' rights at its core. I'm just trying to build a library, okay? <laughs> we literally, we, like, we're sitting at the table, and at this time we were playing in a game store, right, like in their like cafe section, arguing over states' rights <laughs> in the context of our stupid made-up D&D nation. You're not a state just because you built a bigger wall. Right. And named it after yourself, okay? Just because you're rich doesn't mean you aren't responsible for all of us. You still have to pay those taxes, and she runs the army, so you really need to pay those taxes. <laughs> oh, my God. And then all the rich the rich states are like, look, we're fine. We'll give you the money. We just want to know what it's for. <laughs> like, we're just not willing to contribute it, you know, blank check style. Oh, my God. Right. It, and was, then, uh, it was brilliant. Right. And then the, the head of the rangers is like, fine, we'll just stop patrolling. Whatever. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, we had the whole private public sector debate. It oh, was, my God. <laughs> oh, boy. So, so Darren, enjoy, I guess. Right. <laughs> All right. Next question comes from good old Michael at the RPG Academy. He says, first off, does 5th edition need an Eberron sourcebook? Can't we all just use our 3.5 and 4th edition versions? So, yes uh, and no. Short answers, done. Good job, Shane. Thanks for clearing that up. No, I, I think what... 
what makes Eberron really, really cool um, is some of the sort of Magitek um, elements, like a, a lot of the like pulpier um, Magitek elements that got added into it. And I, I do think having those kinds of resources available to players and to DMs in the proper system is important to really making Eberron sing. And, and not that you can't just adapt things. Of course you can just do that. But like I think there are just a lot of stories that haven't been told yet, a lot of themes that haven't been addressed in other 5e products that would be really great to bring into Eberron at any time. And since it's 5th edition, let's do it in 5th edition. Yeah, I love all the ideas that I've been able to get from 3rd, 4th, and 5th edition books partly because they're all slightly different um partly because you know the rules uh, the mechanics get updated um but also like eberron is kind of new in fifth edition like we've got wayfinder's guide which is a great book um we've heard that we're going to get another hardcover eberron book that keith baker is involved in which is great news but you know we don't really have um specifics about that but what that means is all of the information that isn't covered in Wayfinders, the place you're going to get that info is 3rd edition books, 4th edition books. I will say, though, you can go the complete opposite direction and get no Eberron books whatsoever. If you are like playing in 5th edition right now and you want to play an Eberron game, you could start it with zero books because there is so much information online. You've got Keith Baker's website. He writes uh, his Dragon Marks column with tons of information and background lore. And there is there are so many well-fleshed-out wikis online that you can go and read or, like, send as info to your players to see if they're even interested in this, to give them, like, a really good um, idea of what Eberron looks like and what it's like to play there. Um, I have also been using uh, Method James's uh, website, uh, M-E-P-H-I-T, like the creepy little monster. Uh, he does a great job of fleshing out like in extreme detail, maybe even a little too extreme detail, very specific cities in Eberron that he is, you know, partially you um, depending on source books for, but also just sort of coming up with whole cloth from his own head uh, that, you know, I've, I've grabbed names or uh, like locations or stores to like flush out a city and, and make it seem like it, it really is like a, a living environment in the kind of detail that you can't get even from a complete source book. So I will say to take the sort of mm, subtext of Michael's question is if the 5th edition hardcover Eberron sourcebook is just a restatement of the Eberron campaign setting from 3rd and 4th editions, no, we don't need that. Um, I just, I have faith that it will be something more than that. Same here. The 3rd edition books are really excellent resources. Okay. So Michael's second question, how do you keep a campaign going? With, you don't. You let it die. Start a new one. <laughs> with players having to miss sessions for various reasons, people wanting to change characters or new systems, et cetera, et cetera, what's the secret? Um, Perseverance yeah, is the answer. <laughs> yeah. Like, you definitely need some people who are who are committed to it. I will say, the thing when we recruit a new person to the group, the thing that I look for most, more than play experience, more than even, like, are we going to get along, is how dedicated are you to this as a consistent activity mm -hmm. like do you have another activity that you're very interested in that is going to take precedence on the day of the week that we decide that we're going to game if so you're showing up maybe 50 percent of the time and i may like you but i don't want you at the table except as a guest yeah so i think that's important um is 
the simple scheduling aspect you need to solve for with the actual group of people that you have. And, you know, we've been running in our group for years and we've even changed how we do this. Like it, it used to be every week we'd choose a different night that worked on everyone's schedule. And that meant that sometimes we had to just plan on certain people not being there. Um, and other times it meant everyone was there and you had to plan for seven players. And instead, like since then, we've moved to just a fixed night of Monday. And occasionally, like if we can't get the Monday working for a couple of weeks in a row, we try and move the night or whatever. But like we just re remain a little bit flexible there. And then we also schedule like our kind of like big weekend, like getaway games where we play a bunch. Um, but I, I think getting the scheduling aspects sorted out for the people that are going to participate is the most important. And if you leave it either too open-ended or too rigid, uh, where you need everybody there every time, or, okay, we'll figure out the next time we play, like, life just gets in the way too easily. Yeah, life uh, gets in the way. Life uh, <laughs> finds a way to f*** you. So... You know, once you have your group, like I know a lot of people play with people they grew up with, so you don't really have the the option to like choose your group. So you know, you're dealing with people. Um, as a GM, I, I think it really does fall on the GM to be the one to try to keep the game together. One is, I would say, always be taking stock of where your players are and whether they're having a good time. Like actually reaching out or like talking at the table about like did. Are people enjoying their arcs? Do you, or like separately on your own? Like, do you like where your character is going? Or, you know, do you want to go deeper? Or do you, you want me to pull back and not do quite so much focus on you? Like, how is this working for you? That, and if people can give feedback about that, then that's going to keep them from getting bored with their character. Um, or, you know, you can work with them to like tweak their character or, or even find a way that it works for the story to like totally swap them out, right? Like, Brand, you you were getting tired with who Brand was in Morning Glory. So, like, we spent a lot of time working out, like, what would happen to him and how he would be different. But, like, now I honestly barely remember Paladin Brand. Well, that's because he was Cleric Brand. Sure, yeah. I think he was Paladin Cleric Multiclass, wasn't he? Yeah, it was, like, one level of Paladin. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I... I think that's important. There are a couple ways that you can structure your campaign. Um, if players changing characters is a common thing... You can structure your campaign so that there are multiple kind of rotating casts of characters at a given time. Um, there's games that do this well, and I, I will comment on Blades in the Dark yet again. Um, but any time that your players are representing a larger organization, the individuals of that organization available for a given dungeon crawl or mission or heist or whatever you're doing... Uh, can change over time and it's easy to drop in drop out you don't even have to arbitrarily kill them you just say hey cool like they're taking a back seat this episode uh, and you're going to play this other character who's a member of the group yeah and even if you can't play like a uh, a round robin type game where you have a selection of characters at the beginning like even if like the five players are the chosen ones and like each one of them is integral to the prophecy which basically ended up being what morning glory was right mm -hmm. um you in order to keep people interested it's just like a tv show right like every once in a while you need to raise the stakes or surprise them in some way um and you need to reward them by uh like letting them succeed at the thing that they are attempting to do right so make it clear 
here's your task or, you know, have them make it clear. Here's the task we want to accomplish. Have them work toward it after not too long, not too many weeks, have them make some progress toward it. And then either like present what the next step is in order to get further along in their goal or like twist it in some way so that the the goal has changed to like interest them more. Like I, I think our games tend to go in waves of like investigation and combat and investigation and oh crap we definitely did the wrong thing we need to go fix things and investigation and combat Mm -hmm. i also i would also say try to have at least some of that in each session like it is fine to have a a session where you're, you're doing all investigation but i have noticed that um at our table interest tends to lag a little bit after like the third hour of just investigating it also tends to lag a little bit after the third hour of just fighting yeah yeah it it helps to mix up your sessions a little bit there um what about for introducing new systems because i I think our group is a little unique in that practically everybody is a gm or is willing to try to be a gm uh, even if they don't categorize themselves that way <laughs> you can't be a little unique yeah <laughs> shane you're either unique or not unique right it's binary right you're you're snowflake or you're not yeah well everyone's done it so we're all gms now look at us we're all gms um push people toward that i mean it solves so many problems right like it solves the forever dm problem it, it solves the the problem of like people getting bored and wanting to try something new like great we're always trying something new uh and it exposes you to a bunch of new systems that you can pull into your current game to make it better. Like we're always taking different subsystems and slapping them onto whatever game we're playing. Yeah, and then I think from a like structuring your game perspective, I think if you focus on arcs, like narrative um chunks, mm-hmm. then it lets you have natural pausing points to take a break and try a new system, right? And and just time box it. So like cool like this arc is done in our main campaign. Uh, we're going to take three weeks and we're going to play just a, a quick little adventure of this new game that I just bought from Gen Con. Uh, and then we're going to go back, you know, so that everybody is aware, like, cool, we'll, we'll try something new, but also like we'll always be running our main campaign sort of soon. Yeah. I would also say um, bring in the the metagaming of the timing into the session itself. Like, for example, we're playing a game later today that I'm running and I know that like Jim has already told us that he's out for a month after this so like i have planned something so that oh it's a gym episode (laughs) it's an everyone episode because for some reason we have everyone here today right (laughs) but like so there is there will be a reason built in somewhere that explains why he's gone for the next like four weeks right in in like our time right sure i mean i don't know but yeah i believe you no you don't okay (laughs) moving on Next question. So this one comes from Tyler, uh, who said a lot of nice things about us and and gave us a lot of background information. Basically, he is like an admin on a Discord server that runs multiple games in the same homebrew world. So they kind of have like a committee um, whereby they make decisions around what homebrew material to include in the game or in in the world. Um, so then he got kind of a strange request from a player. Um, he says one player requested that all spells become rituals. Uh, and then he says, what I can't believe is that the other staff members are actually agreeing that this is a good idea. So I come to you two. I'm not as eloquent a speaker. Uh, and I was hoping to ask if I could use your voice as to why this is a bad idea. Unfortunately, in a room full of voices, just saying, no, it's a bad idea. Isn't worth much of anything. So I think what we 
what we run into here is basically a discussion of what kind of spells are there in the game, right? Um, just kind of in broad categories because some of them won't be affected at all and others are probably, um, I don't know, a, a little a little more powerful than they should be when we do this. Um, so first of all, things like Fireball and other combat spells that are meant to be cast quickly and have an immediate effect, like casting a Fireball as a ritual is a complete waste of time that's not going to make a difference, right? Wait, so so are we assuming that this means that all spells can be cast as a ritual? Like they all get the ritual tag, yeah, but so, don't have to be? Right, so okay. if you spend 10 minutes as a ritual, you can cast a spell without using a spell slot. Okay, that, that is a terrible idea. Okay. <laughs> Just straight like that, yes, that that's a bad idea. Um, because like a lot of spells are not designed to do that. Like, well, so yeah, but we can say it's a bad idea, but what's the reason for that? Right. So some of the utility spells are meant to be attacks on spellcasters, right. To kind of keep them in balance with the non spellcasters who have to just use skills or other like class features in order to keep up. Yeah. The issue is that many spells then become spammable, right. Um, uh, this is again assuming that the the only difference that you're doing is adding the ritual tag that means that it takes an extra 10 minutes to cast uh okay so if like a first level cleric can given enough time heal an entire army right right you just like cast throughout the night or like a first level cure wounds over and over and over again or you have constant non-concentration buffs like aid and you know bless like sure it doesn't even cost you a slot anymore right it makes prep time like overly useful and it it shifts the cost from spell slots to in-game time which is the most malleable of resources (laughs) right yeah absolutely like you can definitely like it makes it makes kiting so much more valuable let's get mounts we all need mounts right I, i mean think of what it does with expeditious retreat or pass without trace uh any type of transportation or movement spell like now fast travel is a literal 10 minute thing like the window load time is 10 minutes that's it like i said where it doesn't affect is the instantaneous combat spells but where you might run into trouble is if they are planning an ambush or they're planning some type of like you know pre-combat prep where they have spells that have long-term triggers that they can activate for free so something like um, Sunbeam, right, where you can just, as an action each turn, keep reactivating its effect. You've just saved yourself a six-level slot. Um, you know, things like uh, some of the, um, like, Paladin and, and Ranger spells, right, that are triggered on a hit. Um, they're, like, active for a minute, but then they trigger when you actually hit with a weapon attack, like some of the smite spells. Like, you just get to start with one of those for free, which, of course, you could just cast as a higher-level spell as a ritual for no cost. Right. So, and then also high-level spells get really wonky, right? Because there's no rule that you can't cast two ninth-level spells yeah, in a ritual, round, right? Ritual it's, wish. <laughs> it's, right, it's the spell slots that prevent you from doing that. Ritual simulacrum. <laughs> Right. <laughs> For an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> and it's born with your full spell slots because you didn't even use any to cast it. Yeah, it, it turns everybody into an assassin, right? Because mm-hmm. now everybody wants that surprise round. Everybody is investing in stealth or pass without trace and is setting up ambushes, right? Because you're you're basically timing it so that people show up right when you're about to cast your spell. Right. 
uh, or, you know, we sneak into the, um, the bed chambers of like the vizier. Uh, and I, I begin casting in the next room and then the last round, like I run in while I complete the, the spell yeah. and I, and I still have my full spell slots available to get the hell out. Yeah, that's my favorite dungeon crawl is you take 10 minutes in each room. Like, I'll start casting our next room spells. You guys search here or do whatever the useless <laughs> thing that you do, rogue and martial that's, characters. That's a, that's a normal uh, dungeon crawl. Well, that's actually, it's, yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> um, I, I will say Tyler includes a link to um, a set of rules that is slightly tweaked that seems better. It's uh, It says that you can't cast, you can't ritually cast uh, a spell of six level or higher more than once a day. All right, that's good. That solves the high-level problem. It still doubles your spell slots. Yes. Uh, and it also says that you can only ritually cast a number of spells equal to some limited number. I forget exactly what. Like limited by your total character level, maybe? Or your spell Something like level? that. I mean, a, li- a limit is good, right? A limit is great. Uh, but, you know, within that window of additional uh, spell casting that you're getting, you're making spellcasters stronger uh, and you're leaning the entire game toward like more planning and prep which like it already leans towards spells casters and planning and prep anyway mm-hmm. yeah yeah i i think i think that's actually maybe the bigger concern is that it's just going to make everything like either you have perfectly prepared for this encounter or the encounter perfectly prepared for you and it's going to be a short one either way right now i will say that the the impetus behind this i think tends to be Hey, we want there to be more spell casting. We want people not to feel so limited in like how much they can use their spells because we want like lots of magic because that's cool and that's why we're playing this game. So I would say either like Harry Potter exists, you can you can play that and like I think that's a great setting to play in. Eberron exists, where like there's magic all over the place, yeah. uh, or also like just encourage people to like pick up uh, magic initiate or like multi class into magical casting classes. Yeah. All right, so next question. This one comes from Lamont. Lamont says, uh, well, there are some very nice things about us we won't repeat because they're all lies. Uh, But Lamont is running a 5e game on Fantasy Grounds for his friends from the Dragonlance era. They're starting with Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat, but the group is taking a few months off, so he's working it into Eberron. Great. I think that is a great idea. So he asks, are your Morning Glory campaign notes on the DMs Guild or Patreon? I really want to dissect it. I love the prophecies and have already incorporated the draconic prophecy into my game, even though I had no clue what it does or means. I used it more like the green gemstone man and the dragonborn. The party has a simple backstory of he was a slave to the drow and he doesn't remember anything, including not knowing why the drow let him live and how he escaped. So he's, you know, hijacking a lot of that. He's turning into a key something of that person's backstory. He doesn't exactly know yet. He's bringing in the dragon masks. He's bringing in, he's reskinning pool of radiance. I mean, all this is, is awesome, right? He doesn't exactly know what he's doing, but he he wants to, like, dissect Morning Glory notes. Yeah, so I think the short answer here is no, our campaign notes are not available anywhere, mostly because we take bad campaign notes as GMs, I think. Well, also, Morning Glory was over before we began this podcast, so there are are no Morning Glory notes. Yeah, good point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think the operative question here is more, how can you use the Draconic Prophecy concept in or outside of Eberron, right? So Draconic Prophecy, cool. How do I use it? Right. So we did an episode on prophecies uh, that delves into the Draconic Prophecy, but also just prophecies in general. Um, So the Draconic Prophecy in Eberron is like this overarching uh, 
uh, prophecy written in the stars or the skies or celestial bodies that is a tool for the GM to basically say anything was ordained or to like bring fate into the game. Um, you can use it however you want. It's one of those great things about Eberron where like nobody really understands it and it's kind of undefined. So it's just an option for you to like get players to go to a place because, hey, there was a prophecy about it or like get them to like be interested in the main plot, which is what I did in Morning Glory by like writing them all into the prophecy. I mean, I didn't write them into the prophecy. They were always there, right? Yeah, it's it's also useful as an explanation for a lot of divination um, that just works within the world, right? Like the Draconic Prophecy is sort of like the Wheel of Time mm-hmm. in that if you have the ability to read it either through magic or some gift or being an NPC or some MacGuffin or whatever, like you can now know things that would be otherwise unknowable because they're happening in wherever across the world or you can find out about the future or a possible future or you know what has impacted some future whatever right like it just gives you a big great macguffin to figure out what the hell's going on here yeah that you can lead pcs to do to do whatever right and it can be either only a few people can interpret it typically the dragons in Arganesson who usually want to eat you right um or it could be someone in the party. If you have a diviner or, you know, someone's backstory is that they, they have visions. You can use them as the, the seed for planting information. And it is always up to the, the GM like what the prophecy actually means, right? Because it, it's never clear. It never actually says anything outright. It, it's always like flowery language or like mystic phrases or, or something. So you can always tweak it later it's an extremely useful thing to pull into any game right it doesn't need to be dragons in a, in a game where there are no dragons it can be like well harry potter has like prophecies in bottles you know and those can easily be misinterpreted or reinterpreted or retconned um you know greek mythology has like the the three fates and you know weaving weaving skeins and, and all of that like you can use that in any way that you want and you don't have to know exactly what you're doing or where you're going right just introduce the concept of it. Okay, fate plays a role. Uh, something is able to divine the future. It's pushing us in a direction. We either go that way or we don't go that way. Interesting thing happens either way. And later on, like, you can rewrite. And that's the thing that you always meant because that's how prophecies have to work. All right, let's keep moving. Uh, this next one comes from Jeff uh, from the System Mastery podcast i don't think i've heard of that one. Mm-hmm. i don't know uh, what that is he also might be the guy who compiled the majority of the character creation forge codex oh hey yeah that's a useful resource yeah so he's all around helpful guy all right jeff writes it's a fact that a lot of the old D mainstay monsters are based on some packs of quote prehistoric monsters that were made in the 70s Rust monsters, boulettes, owlbears are among the critters inspired by a severe misunderstanding of dinosaurs. If you could design a new monster for a game based on a crazy coincidence, deep misunderstanding, or a fanciful interpretation, what would it be? Oh. God damn it, Jeff. That's a good question. Yeah, see, I read that one and I thought, I better sneak this in before we get too drunk. Well, wait, how are you doing? You need to drink more. Uh, I'm good, man. Hmm. Nope, keep going. All right, so let's see. Fanciful creature, terribly misunderstood. All right, I'll take a crack at this. Go for it. Keeping with the dinosaur theme, I would like an iguanodon 
Remember the Iguanodon? Mm-hmm. Kana looks like an upright duck-billed platypus. Yep, it's got yep. a crest in its head. And because people didn't know how to put it together, they they like constructed it with these like pointy, stabby thumbs. Mm-hmm. I want this to be true. Okay. <laughs> the, it's actually a, a thumb-stabbing monster. Yes, exactly. Okay. All right. It has hands, sure. Okay. But it only really uses those those four fingers for grabbing things. But its mm-hmm. main weapon are these, um, I don't know, let's say psychically projected thumbs coming out of the, the top of its paws uh, that you don't really understand. It's uh, They're oddly glowing. They're very strange. Maybe even they're like uh, anglerfish or will-o'-the-wisps uh, in the dark. Uh, you know, they're camouflage because dinosaurs are camouflage. Let's go with that. Okay. Um, it waits. It waits in the darkness. It, it calls to you using a human-like voice. It's terrifying. It's weird. And <laughs> and, and as, as children or bumps. farmers <laughs> wander out into the swamps looking to see what it what is it? Why is why is the voice of my dead mother calling me? And and. Waving, what she got in her hands? What she waving? Oh God, it's psychic thumb knives, and like they like directly to the jugular. Okay, <laughs> this is. I feel like this monster belongs in Lost. Look, this monster is no weirder than an owl bear. Okay, <laughs> you're not wrong. <laughs> or the land shark. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, so I'm gonna take this in a little bit. I don't know. Less, I don't know if this is more, more? weird or less weird. Yeah. Um, okay, so you know kangaroos and how they have this like frighteningly strong physique, and they always look like boxers on steroids. Yeah, so so boxers. Yeah, but well, <laughs> uh, but, eh, I don't know. I watch a lot of boxing. I don't know that that's exactly how I describe boxers. <laughs> okay, but, but anyway, yeah. So they have this terrifying like presence there's always these videos of crazy wait wait wait. terrifying presence or capital t capital p you're giving them a draconic terrifying presence. <laughs> maybe both i was actually going to suggest the uh pteranodon but with oh, terror God. in it so i don't know maybe we can mix them together anyway but there's these videos of like you know kangaroos being all jacked up and like going after people and, and frankly just being terrifying oh yeah little punch monsters uh, and kick monsters. Um, I, like I, I would love to see some type of monster that's based on the urban legend of the the horrifying kangaroo. Like just something that comes in with just fists of fury, um, and and is just such a strange shape but terrifying visage. Um, you know, you just can't help but need to run away from it. I love the idea of like an eighteen fifteen explorer, like. Um finally making their way back to like the London Historical Society and just being like, oh, goodness, goodness, it it leapt 50 feet in the air and it had three giant legs and and it, it had a head like a jackal, like Anubis, like the god of death. <laughs> I, yeah, that's a terrifying description and I it's know, not entirely wrong. Right, right? And inside it had yet another smaller version of itself. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's it was like, controlled by, by a smaller version of itself inside its belly. I call it a krang. <laughs> a krangaroo. <laughs> <gasps> yeah, so that's uh, that's my my crappy D and D monster. <laughs> um, all right, well, the Krangaroo is now canon, <laughs> right? <laughs> Terribly piloted marsupials. I love it. 
All right. Uh, next one comes all the way from Germany. This is from Rika, who brings back one of our old school topics for these mailbags, which are GM horror stories, Ooh. or at least gaming horror stories. Uh, Rika writes, first off, love the show. Slowly working my way through the back catalog. Yeah, it's a slog. It's true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> slowly. I'm probably way too late for my worst story ever, but it's funny, so I thought I'd share. When I first became interested in D&D, I was in university, and one of the guys from the archery club organized a 3.5 one-shot. Hey! Get it? Okay. <laughs> it's archery, got it. We were all newbies, except for the cleric, who had played before, and the DM. First half, things are going slow, but well. The necromancer even has a dead body following him. Oh, goals, man, goals. Then we break for food, and during the food break, the DM asked me out on a date. I politely decline. First wait, 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 wait. We could stop right there, and this is still the GM horror story. Yeah, I mean, this is not a good look. No. <laughs> like, don't I, ask out your, your players. I, don't ask out people this isn't who a, work for you. Yeah, well, this isn't quite as uncomfortable as, like, the employee-employer sure, sure. relationship, right? I mean, th- th- this is ultimately a social activity. I get that that can kind of happen. Uh, at the same time, though, oh, boy, this gets worse. Right. Hey, we just met. Yeah, so here, let's just go. First thing after the break, my character is bitten by what is essentially a Lord of the Rings fell beast. Ishan, you can explain what that is to me shortly. It's a bad scene. And becomes incurably poisoned and basically useless. I spent the rest of the evening playing with the dog. I assume out of character. (laughs) Maybe. TLDR, I refused to date the DM, so he basically killed my character. Wow, that got way worse. And just for chuckles, it's been four years since the game... I'm now dating the guy that played the necromancer, and I'm running my own campaign. (laughs) All right, cheers on running your own campaign. Cheers from Germany, where the black eye is indeed super popular. Uh, I think this was one of the... um, This might actually be a game that's now published by Ulysses, who just lost the Wrath and Glory license. But yeah, anyway, I I think we had talked about how um, Germany and like uh, Norway and Sweden have like a few games that haven't really crossed over to the U.S., um, and I believe the Black Eye is one of the like kind of dark fantasy games. Yeah, that... one of those like grim dark games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I actually always assumed that like Warhammer was a German game. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> it, it does have a lot of that kind of dark fairy tale element. <laughs> um. Okay, this is more of uh, a hey, just so you guys know, than a question. But oh god. Um, yeah, no, don't do this. I, that's simple fact, right? It's like, if you have to ask out somebody in your group, be mature enough to handle rejection and leave it at that rejection and move on with your life. Yeah, I will say, okay, we have spent 200 episodes being like, hey, there's a there's a social contract at the table and hey, power gamers, make sure you rein it in. And like people who are like super focused on like being in character all the time, make sure that you're at least like keeping one eye on the metagame so that everyone's still having fun. This is probably one of the very few instances where I would say, blow up the game. <laughs> like, do it. Just you know what? Set it on fire. Yeah. yeah. You, it, if you want, you in this instance, you can be like, hey, that was cool. I'm going to bring another character, if you don't mind. Um, this is this is 3.5, right? I'm going to bring a, uh, well, they're, they're called the Diplomancer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to jump <laughs> right. uh, and ruin your... <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of this, but I think we're all going to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, the more mature response, I, I guess, is what Rika actually did, which is start their own game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. And um, also, just kind of the reminder that this behavior is not antiquated. It still happens. Uh, it's still not okay. So, if you see it happening at your table, don't like say something. Uh, yeah. If you are in a position where you can do something about it because it's just not cool we shouldn't be alienating people at our table because we want to date them yeah it'd be way better to have more people in the game huh mm-hmm. all right next question this one's from pat aka snark knight who has been with us quite a long time mm-hmm. pat we appreciate it we're a little shocked that you're you know still listening hasn't but... quit yeah all right pat says Dark Sunday at Thrillicon prompted me to ask, how does your group engage with the exhaustion rules? Uh, Poorly. Poorly, we tend to die. Do you modify them, and how do you handle exhausted PCs? It's a kind of fiddly, expensive to heal, and seemingly punitive mechanic in the 5e system. I have no problem sending dragons or diplomatic crises against the PCs, but I hesitate to break the glass and use exhaustion. I attempt to follow the way of the alternate combat objective and fail forward, but exhaustion seems to just make those things harder to do. Uh, I, I agree. I don't like the exhaustion system. Yeah, you're written. you're not wrong at all. Um, and I think part of that is that it is a failure spiral, right? Like you take that first level of exhaustion and like, all right, it doesn't cripple you, but I think level one exhaustion gives you disadvantage on ability checks, right? Yep. So what was happening in Dark Sun is the thing that causes exha- exhaustion is failing an ability check. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, Oh, did we do that? We might have done it that we way. We did because yeah. it wasn't saves because you didn't want it to right, um, I didn't have want proficiency. proficiency. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, yes, that that is exactly what happened when we used it in Dark Sun. It made it very hard to travel anywhere, uh, which is exactly what we wanted for Dark Sun <laughs> was to be pointless and punitive. Right, like Dark Sun isn't necessarily grim dark in the way that 40k is, except when you're traveling in the desert. Mm-hmm. Then what happens is you there's an excellent chance that you like die of exposure. Right, so if you don't plan appropriately for it, um, you're screwed. I will say, though, that, yeah, it's a subsystem that is not great because, like, at first, nothing really happens. Like, ability checks are, like, taking a disadvantage on ability checks are not that bad in most combats, but what's level two? Saving throws? Uh, Yeah, I believe so. And maybe even attack rolls as well? Yeah, by level three, you're basically unplayable. Yeah, exactly. Like you can't do anything, and you can't do anything to like get rid of the exhaustion because I think the only things that get rid of exhaustion are a fifth level spell, which gets rid of one level of exhaustion, right. greater restoration, right? Or um, sleep, right? For eight hours, which also gets rid of one level. Yep. Yeah. So uh, never has a game made healing more difficult and also made the game more fun. Yeah. Like not being able to operate at full capacity just sucks most of the time. Right. Like it's fine to make healing in combat more difficult. But downtime, like, it's boring to be like, I can't do anything for six days in-game. Yeah. And, I mean, I think that's a big problem with it in D&D is there's not a whole lot of ways to get exhaustion um, outside of kind of misplaying your own hand uh, with things like, you know, haste and barbarian rage or whatever. Um, but the the thing is, like, anything that would cause exhaustion as a damage track is basically unhealable debuffs that last for multiple combats. Right, and those debuffs aren't fun. Right. Right, like, it actually is kind of fun if you, like, sort of look at the macro level to, like, get hit, take some damage, but, you know, I'm still up or whatever, or to, like, figure out the, like, um, the conga line that you need to do in order to, like, keep the right person up at the right time so that you can sort of heal everyone in combat. 
But yeah, something that you can't do anything about except by spending like a very valuable resource and it still probably doesn't even get you on your feet kind of sucks, which is why like I don't actually... I like very rarely will use exhaustion in a 5e game that I'm running in the same way that I will very rarely use um, a stun, like a long-term stun, mm-hmm. because it just takes a person out of the game and like they have nothing to do. Like a... Uh... Like a mind blast? Is that what you're thinking? Uh, well, yeah, mind blast or uh, what's the uh, prismatic circle or whatever it's called? What is that? Spray? No. Uh, whatever. Doesn't matter. Wall? No. It's not prismatic. It's the... Dragon? No, it's a spell that Angelo uses. The... Hold monster? <laughs> Never mind. The, oh, the... um. Hypnotic pattern. Hypnotic pattern. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Like, any incapacitations like that, um, losing a turn is really boring. So I actually... I mean, what I tend to do is I, I amp it up, actually. I, like, turn into a dominate. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's actually more fun is to attack your teammates. Yeah, exactly. I mean it's way it's way more swingy and like it's actually way more powerful. So you need to dial creatures back. But I remember in five e, I did one time use a creature that had an exhaustion ray that would cause one to two levels of exhaustion on a hit. And I the only reason I use it is because like I didn't really bring an exhaustion even when you guys were traveling long places and it was it was for you guys to go, holy crap two hits and like you're out three hits and you are dead dead mm-hmm. um i but i still don't even really know that it worked i right? don't feel that it landed that effect i right. think it was like, just an annoying debuff that was very difficult to get rid of for no good reason right you got hit once and it was like eh that sucks yeah two it was like well i can't do anything because i'm terrible at everything and right. three is i'm just dead yeah yeah i oh boy so yeah i would say um shy away from using exhaustion in general um there are other ways to to emulate this uh, i mean you can you can take penalties but in general penalties are, are less interesting than um like presenting separate options or or like um having a a narrative element to what actually happened right yeah i mean i, I guess the question though is like for the effects that cause exhaustion or, or that would traditionally like narratively cause what you would say is exhaustion right what's the way to mechanically represent that if not using the actual exhaustion damage track for me i mean i think a decent way to do that is just to like temporarily reduce your maximum hit points actually that was just about what i was about to say yeah it makes your combats more dangerous of course but it's not a long-term permanent thing and frankly like losing 10 hit points off the top for most characters is probably not a huge deal for a few characters might be very threatening and in all likelihood like it means one fewer hits takes you out like it's fine right i mean 10 per level right sure so like (laughs) 10 per level yeah so zero great well 10 per exhaustion level right so oh right yeah so three exhausted like 30 is a lot for any character yeah and like 60 which is what normally kills you with exhaustion like that is very likely going to kill a lot of people. So. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe that's a quick shorthand. Uh, yeah. HP and then uh, oh, dock hit dice as well. I wouldn't only dock hit dice because most people forget they even have them yeah, until exactly. <laughs> until you're out of healing spells. All right. Uh, next, uh, not really a question, but just a, a mailbag item from Nolan. 
Um, we were talking not too long ago, if you remember, about us buying those um, dungeon map dungeon maps reincarnated um, because we're now accessory buying people apparently in our hobby. Um, so Nolan sends a tip. I thought it was good to pass along. He says, to prolong the life of our printed maps, we use a clear and inexpensive plexiglass sheet, two foot by three foot. Dry erase markers work well, and you can, you know, avoid spills. He says, we found it at a local Home Depot type store. Uh, Yeah, I had uh, a GM um, quite a few years back who managed a Kinko's. So one, it was amazing because he could print out all of his battle maps for free, like on large format. But he would do the same thing. Like we would roll in to play at his place and the like kitchen table would already have the battle map down and a piece of plexiglass over it. So, you know, people always show up and they put their stuff down, they put their cards down, they they put their food down, right? But it never got the, the map messy. It was always easy to clean in case someone did spill something, which always inevitably happens at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great idea. All right, next question. Or series of questions from longtime listener, longtime friend of the show, Matt Perotti. First off, he says, How do you perceive and describe radiant weapons and damage, like a radiant sword or a radiant bolt? Shane, how do you describe or perceive radiant damage? I mean, you are playing in an Asimar who's using reflavored radiant damage. Uh, yeah, I'm playing a half fae who's reflavored Asimar. A reflavored Asimar using reflavored radiant damage. Yeah, uh, so I always think of radiant damage as just like holy fire mm-hmm. you know like a like a slightly like whiter light <laughs> like i think a fire is red and radiant is white uh but it's still just fire in in my mind how about you yeah i would say it, it burns more cleanly right like there's like no there's no less, s- less uh co2 emissions and you know it's better for the earth yeah, no yeah. floor carbons yeah. uh yeah it, it's like for me it's the the third edition holy damage um it there's no smoke. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't char your flesh so much as it sears it the way that a lightsaber might. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I think same same as you. Like I envision as like a sort of a blinding bright white light, and like in a way that like it leaves an after image on your eyes. Yeah. After yeah, you yeah. look at it. Yeah. Um, and as far as like a radiant sword versus a radiant bolt, I, I, I guess I just. I would see like a sword as just sort of glowing from within. Um, whereas like I think of a flaming sword as like kind of like physically on fire, right? Um, and a radiant bolt is just like sort of a flash of light. Yeah, yeah. I might compare it to like stars versus planets in the sky. Like uh, fire like flickers and twinkles mm-hmm. and like and like it, it spreads, right? Yeah. It, it like eats things. It catches things on fire. Radiant doesn't do that. Radiant is clean in a way. Like you hit the thing that you hit. And it doesn't spread anywhere, and it is just a solid light that is on, and then it is off. All right. Then he says, do you have a favorite non-Tanith Imperial Guard unit, and why? Shane, I think this might be a question for you. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> the Belladons? Come on. Come on. <laughs> so We're gassed. So the thing about the Imperial Guard is that, like, every unit is recruited from a different world, and they all have sort of their different cliches. Um, so you have things like the uh, catechins or catechins who are basically Rambo, but, you know, thousands of them. Right, they come from a jungle death world, is that it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a death world so deadly that, like, chaos was like, no, we're cool. <laughs> like, um, and then there's a bunch of different, like, goofy, cliched 
almost like meme regiments um so like pick your particular battle that you want to see something styled after uh world war one world war two whatever like you will find a regiment that sort of matches that so uh, the napoleonic wars uh, like, yep, that's out there too those are there uh i think they're praetorians i i can't remember which regiment i think with is. a name like praetorians it's probably romans oh yeah you're probably right um but so there there are things out there uh like cadians are the standard uh, not my favorite um but you have things like the elysian drop troops who are <laughs> just trained to use jump packs and f- jump in and die um you've got the uh death corps of krieg is one of my favorites they're kind of a world war one like trench warfare type um regiment um i also like the savlar chem dogs they are a penal legion that is uh, obviously quite addicted to drugs, being as they are chem dogs. Uh, they have commissars less so to keep morale up and more so to keep them from just breaking ranks and looting everything. <laughs> I've decided that my uh, psychic iguanodon in the swamps is called a Savlar chem dog. Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, like, I, I like I I tend to appreciate a lot of the different. Um, the different ones uh I, I unfortunately there are things like the talarn desert raiders who are um kind of styled after like lawrence of arabia and sort of like british Beatlemania. <laughs> sure <laughs> shane i think you're making all these names up yes yeah. <laughs> totally <laughs> you're doing a great job of it <laughs> um <laughs> i i don't know i i don't really know that i have another favorite um i actually i like uh i like the tanith a lot i let me go with uh, let me, I, you know, I, I kind of, yeah, I really like the Death Corps Krieg. I'm gonna go with them. The Death Corps Krieg. Yeah. Are these orcs? They are not. Um, they are. They're the the World War One trench warfare. Oh, Mar- which uh, is like quintessentially guard. Imperial Guard. Yeah, it's yeah, all like, trench warfare. They they very much embrace the fighting spirit of the Imperial Guard. Yeah. Um, and they also they ride horses. Oh, so it's really more the like Crimean War. Well, no, 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 no. I they have uh. Rough Riders is what they're called, but they uh, have like they have like horse it's the, horse cavalry. It's it's the Spanish American War. Is yeah, what you're saying exactly <laughs> with trenches. All terrible wars. Very bad. Matt's next question. Very important question. Shane, what is your favorite fruit? Lime. Moving on. Really? Yeah, it's huh. great. Uh, mango, obviously. Come on, uh-huh. king of fruits. <laughs> Fine. And then, Shane, how would you use a dire platypus? Well, since I don't know that you read all these questions before you suggested your uh, your answer to Jeff's question. Oh, yeah, that's true. I didn't I didn't at but, all. Uh, an iguanodon does look a bit like a dire platypus. Yeah, but since you, you literally described the iguanodon as a platypus-type animal, I mean, I think, I think the iguanodon is the dire platypus, right? I think you're totally wrong. The dire platypus, of course, uh, uses – it weaponizes its uh, eggs and poison in that it can shoot them. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And I think its beaver tail uh, creates some sort of like giant tremor, right? Well, so it's definitely going to have that type of stat profile, like the T Rex, where it has like its, uh, you know, its poison claw, and then it also has the tail attack. Oh yeah, right? you know, you're right. It can't be the same target. And like dire creatures, it needs to have like more bone armor, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like on its uh, on its bill. Well, it's, oh god, it's, it's terrifying, bony bill. It's larger than an average platypus too, right? Because that's what dire usually means. So it's like a it's a small size platypus. <laughs> <laughs> Those platypuses are really tiny. I don't know. The giant owl is large, so I think a dire platypus could be as much as huge. Okay. Okay. Isn't there? There's that uh, like. 
There's that marsupial that was, what, 60 million years ago? Maybe only 30 million years ago. Sorry, give or take 30 million years. Uh, that was like 30 feet tall and would like eat from the top of uh, the trees. That feels like a a mistake in the in the research. Oh, you think <laughs> someone just got imperial and metric confused? Yeah, that, that feels like somebody has misinterpreted the historical record. Speaking of Jeff from System Mastery, uh, they did just read a Star Wars book where a character was described as being 80 feet tall, and they probably just didn't know how big a meter was. <laughs> That's great. All right. Uh, next one. This is probably going to have to be your your... Uh, realm of expertise here. Oh, oh, yeah. This comes from Alan. He says he wants to have things like the Marvel Masters of the Mystic Arts and Great Dragon Civilization, but I cannot think of a reason why they would not just storm the castle of the main villain, who's a vampire and the master of an undead kingdom, other than they do not care. But I want to have them help in the final battle. What can I do? I think this is actually a, a common question that GMs will have, right? Like, we have it a lot in Emberon, which is, like, why don't the dragons in Arganesson, who, like, canonically destroyed an entire continental giant civilization, uh, why aren't they wiping out the elves, who they hate? Uh, why aren't they solving all the problems in Corvair? Why aren't they, like, destroying all the reagents in Sarlona? Like, this happens a lot when you introduce, like, a, a powerful civilization, or even you have dragons who aren't just, like, crazy roving marauders, or you have... um like in uh, in Greyhawk, the, the Council of Eight, like you're all extremely powerful wizards. Why don't you just go fix this stuff? Yeah. And part of it is like coming up with a reason why, one, they don't know about it. Two, they don't care about it. Three, they're unable to act. I think these are probably the most interesting ways to handle it. One is that it should just, it can just begin. The problem can begin as like a local problem that maybe the dragons or like, the masters of the mystic arts don't care about like the sorcerer supreme guards earth but also like is keeping dimensional entities from like coming into our universe right like they're freaking busy yeah so like if you have um a nation state that is like threatening nuclear war like that's bad but is it ending the multiverse bad <laughs> mm, probably not right so like they're they're busy with that they're they're going to handle that until the last moment when Oh God! I like those nukes are going to destroy the entire planet, and like that's where the Sorcerer Supreme lives. So up until that point, like you can assume that they are going to be very busy, but you can also you, you use them as a MacGuffin, like they or or like they're a goal. Like the, if the party wants to get them involved, great, that can be a goal for them to do. Like go convince the Sorcerer Supreme, or go convince like the Chamber in Arganesson that like this is something worth their time, and also try not to get eaten. Um. But mostly it can fly under the radar. Like most campaigns can fly under the, under the radar until the last moment. And by then it's usually too late for them to intervene because like the dragons can't fly here in time or mm. the Sorcerer Supreme is like off on, you know, some other planet and can't teleport back here instantly. Like it's just you and Cthulhu. Uh, second is like, uh, or it could just be that, like they are, they're unable to interfere. I think we have this a lot with like, why don't the gods just like fight our battles for us? And and often the, the way that like Judeo-Christian like television shows or like fiction tends to deal with is, is like God and the angels can't intervene too much. 
because that will be mutually assured destruction, right? Like if heaven and hell clash, everything is destroyed. So like it's sort of up to the people on earth to figure this out with occasional help from like people you can call and like, hey, there's a spell called Planar Ally. And you can like call an angel to come help you. And like they'll help you a little bit, but they can't do it for you. Right. Um, I think the other piece of this, right, is you don't have to answer this up front, right? At the mm-hmm. point where the players go to those groups and petition for help, this is when those groups explain, like, look, there are bigger things at play here. Like, yeah, I agree. This is important to you, but none of it will matter if we fail. So we can only spare you this very slightest of our resources. Sorry. And, yeah, that can be frustrating to the party. It can also make them feel like, oh, we're not dealing with, like, anything interesting or big. Like that might be fine. It could also be that like these uh, these organizations are so powerful that they're just filled with hubris, mm. and they like can't see that like this is actually the most important thing happening. You know, because they've been at this for fifteen thousand years. Like they don't have perspective anymore. Right. Yeah. Here, take this gauntlet. Go do what you will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here. Yeah. Take take this thing that like isn't important to me anymore. Like this this paltry magic item that actually turns out is really freaking powerful in the right hands, and I didn't know that. Right. All right, next question. This one comes... Uh, yeah. Oh, do you want to do this one? No, I was just going to say, and it's a really great chance for, like, at the end or right near the end for your party to show up and be like, you said this wasn't important. And then, like, they hold up, like, you know, heads of, like, people that they've killed and, like, the, the MacGuffins that they found. And they're like, big mistake. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. Poke <laughs> the bear. <laughs> All right, so this next one comes from Tom Cantwell, uh, also from the RPG Academy. You can find him on their Twitch stream. Tom asks, what race and class combinations do you think are grossly underestimated by folks, both mechanically and thematically? And how do you trick players into thinking outside the box during character creation? Also, congrats on 200 episodes. Oh, that's nice. How do you trick players into it? I don't know. I We have a lot of players who... We trick ourselves, so we're, yeah. we're not a good sample group there. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the one way to do this is to ask that players roll randomly for these things, right? And just find out what happens or put some type of restriction um, into the classes and races that are available in the particular game. So like, it's tough to say, like, you can't play the optimal mix. But at the same time, like, if you kind of take out some of the core races, maybe you get little more exotic builds yeah i mean i might say like take out variant human Mm. um that'll make almost everybody gravitate away from human Mm -hmm. it might make everyone gravitate toward half elf though well maybe um which is fine i would say if you want people to play more outlandish races then dial back the constant racism in game because (laughs) Because, like, it, I think it's in, it can be interesting to be, like, the half-orc who has to prove themselves in a society of mostly humans. But five sessions in, that gets really old. And what happens in most games is you kind of just drop it, you know? Like, you you stop having every village freak out because, like, you already had that interaction and you already figured it out and it's not really fun anymore to do it again. Yeah, it's not fun to be sidelined in every new village you go to until you prove yourself. Like, right. Sometimes like, you want to walk in and just be like, hey, my reputation precedes me. Yeah, I'm the orc with the big axe. Let's move on. Right. Like, I prove myself a hero. And that's how it usually like goes in, in, like, you know, fantasy games where, like, it doesn't make any sense for people not to be terrified of the half-orc. Yeah. But I think it's also one of the reasons that we really like cosmopolitan settings like Eberron 
where everybody is in is in Corvair mm-hmm. uh, and, and Sharn specifically like every race is there and nobody bats an eye it's, it's why I like uh, Monty Cook's Tolis um, even like Waterdeep and Forgotten Realms like we don't love Forgotten Realms but like I'm in a play by post game where I'm a Kenku and like where this is a Baxi and it's not weird because like it, it's a world full of magic and like that's just what happens yeah um, so what about the class combinations though? I like dwarf anything. Okay. Um, I mean, dwarves are, sh- mountain, is a mountain? Yeah, mountain dwarves are strong because they're plus two strength, plus two con. But I really love dwarven wizards. Uh, that con is great for your concentration checks. Um, dwarven druids. I love dwarven druids. Um, I, I really love the, um, the incongruity of a, uh, a race that doesn't seem like it fits like um you know half orc sorcerers things like that right and i i do like that in fifth edition you're not like actually penalized like for the first few levels yeah you're you're probably like a plus one behind someone who's playing the optimal like race class yeah. combination yeah. but once you get 20 you top out right, right. so by the time you're at level eight like, it literally doesn't matter anymore yeah so i think that is the so I was going to say the the two pieces of this that mechanically I think are most interesting are the fact that basically anybody can be a good druid if you're a moon druid because mm-hmm. you're not really that wisdom dependent as a druid. Like you, you don't necessarily have to cast offensive spells at all as a druid. So your wisdom and wisdom save doesn't matter. Um, and then when you beast shape, you basically wipe away all of your physical stats anyway so yeah. it really doesn't matter what your race is um if you want to play a druid and the flip side is because fighter gets so many asis anybody can be a pretty competent fighter by like level eight right three asis makes everybody even by that point so you can play basically either the dex or strength version with literally any race as a fighter and i think that's really cool and i think that's just they're both simple, right? Like they're both very straightforward. And so I think they often get overlooked, but I think that's actually really cool to be, you know, you are the one gnome fighter, right? Like they're not very common in gnome society, but like you are one. Yeah. Uh, the kobold fighter, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the tiny goblin fighter who like uses, uh, what is that? Their ability cower. <laughs> yeah. Or cower and grovel. Grovel. Right. <laughs> To to great effect because that gets people within range of you and now you can murder them. Yeah. Um, Warforged Druid. I love Warforged Druid. Um, 3.5 had a prestige class called Landforged Walker, which was very specifically a Warforged who like got so in touch with the land that they were, you know, turned into crazy creatures from 40,000 years ago. Right. And I love the like deciding with your GM, do I turn into animals or do I turn into like warforged versions of animals yeah yeah (laughs) and i think either's awesome i turn into that terrifying dog creature from boston dynamics oh god yeah that is that is awful um i like uh halflings as anything you don't expect um warlocks halfling warlocks they still work really like mechanically well as warlocks. Um, but I think people think of them as like too cheerful mm-hmm. and like, I'm so lucky, but what if you're just not that lucky? All right. So Shane, I'm pouring you more tequila. All right. My I'm pouring is me more tequila. And I will start reading the next question then. Please. So this one comes from Roman. Roman asks first, 
What are some of your favorite character tropes to incorporate into a new character, even if you've played them before? So the trope that I tend to gravitate towards is... Um, Huge douche. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Uh, right. Is the fish out of water. Um, mm. So, you know, if I can be the half-orc who has left his tribe, or I can be the, um, you know, sorcerer in the Society of Wizards or something like that. Like, that that's the trope that I tend to like, because I can kind of explore the edges of the setting that way. I think... My favorite trope, if I'm honest, is the character that makes other people uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. No, that fits perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and part of that is, like, from the previous question, um, the incongruity of, like, seeing a dwarven druid, right? Like, even if you are fine with it, the like, even if other characters are fine with it, the fact that they, they haven't seen it before or they're a little confused by it throws people off a little in-game. Um, I specifically picked a moon druid in our birthright game because you know we were playing like a council that rules a country and i just love the idea of being like a bear on a throne mm. just because that would throw people off right and dug it. um oh the other thing actually that is probably more accurate and more oftenly done by me is i like to partner with somebody at the table to have mm -hmm. two characters that are kind of you know brothers in arms or actual siblings or related or best friends or something like that like i like to i like to bring pairs together um and i i usually pick a new player for every campaign um so that like i get to spend a little more time like kind of collaborating with that person yeah you've done it with me and 40k you did it with jim when you were both paladins you're paladin bros we we're paladin bros uh -huh. in in early eberron and uh, right now you're doing with angelo and bramble in um the second more uh eberron campaign yep and Susie in birthright Oh, yeah, the two of you are terrible people. Mm, yeah. <laughs> We're the rich ones. <laughs> I'm also a rich one, but I am not terrible. <laughs> you're... Uh, you're... I'm, uh, I'm top 3%, which doesn't count. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Roman's next question. What's your, favorite, what's your current favorite system to play in, and are there any hot-off-the-presses systems that you have been wanting to try? So let's tackle the second part of this first. Uh, what is coming out that you are very excited about? Uh, well, two things, I suppose. The first is uh, Wrath and Glory is getting rebooted because it has shifted ownership from Ulysses to Cubicle 7. And I very much trust Cubicle 7 more than I did Ulysses now, uh, which is part of why we have never actually given Wrath and Glory a review. But they have promised to basically reboot the game. And so it's going to be something of like a one and a half edition or second edition that should clean it up quite a bit. Um, so I'm very excited about that. Um, and much sooner coming off the presses, um, Band of Blades is currently in beta. You can buy it on DriveThruRPG from Evil Hat, but it is the um, Black Company, like, dark, grim military fiction version of uh, Blades in the Dark. And I'm very excited to see how that goes. Yeah, I mean, keeping with the Blades in the Dark theme, I'm excited. It's not new, but I'm excited to dig into Scum and Villainy, mm -hmm. uh, which I think there are a couple of games that we're looking at that might use those rules very well. But I personally am looking into digging into um, Blades in the Dark hacks because it, it is so very hackable. Um, I think I'm also interested in seeing what eventually happens with Eclipse Face 2nd Edition. Um, the beta that we played is not in a good place. Yeah. Uh, but... I would love for that to be a system that actually made any sense. Um, so what's your current favorite system to play in? Uh, I like 5e because it's simple. Like, I, I know exactly what I'm getting from 5e, and I don't have to do too much work um, to, like, 
to know what I'm going to get out of it. Uh, so I, I like that. Um, I, I also still like, I really do like dark heresy. Um, second edition. Yeah. I, I, I really do like that system. Like I'm very comfortable with it, having GM'd it long enough now, uh, and, and played in it as well. Like, uh, so I guess my favorite systems to play are the ones that I'm just most familiar with. Hmm. Um, but I will say, like, the single system that I am most excited about, the one that I never miss a chance to play in, the one that, like, I have seen done so many different ways and I'm constantly impressed by, um, is Blades in the Dark. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, actually. Blades in the Dark. Uh, I really enjoy every game of that that I have played. Um, I'm interested to see a longer campaign and how that holds up well. But in, in general, PBTA games, uh, I feel like tend not to go very long. So I would I would like to see what happens. Um, but yeah, fifth edition I think is a relatively elegant system. But also like we've built more than 200 character creation forge builds, yeah. and so there is never a moment when there isn't a 5e build that I am like desperately hankering to play right <laughs> uh also dark heresy second edition makes me so frustrated i love the idea of it more than i love it i well yeah no totally I, i'm not saying it's good i'm just saying it's <laughs> your favorite right? yeah um the other the other thing i will put in for is gumshoe as a system yeah i agree um, like we don't play any cthulhu type games so a lot of the gumshoe like derivatives are kind of out for us um, but it has a one-to-one system, which I think is really interesting. Uh, we both like Knights Black Agents. You've played Fall of Delta Green. I've mm-hmm. played Time Watch. Those are both gumshoe-based games that are very different. Um, I, I think it's it's actually a really elegant system that does a lot. Like it's um, from Robin D. Laws, and a lot of the um, hacks are by Ken Height, who we like. So I, I mean, I think that's also a, a system that I wouldn't turn down at any point either. If I was going to introduce a new group of people to RPGs, I would use gumshoe. Oh, nice. All right. Roman continues, where do you consider yourselves on the spectrum of rules light to rules heavy in terms of ideal mechanical grit? What systems most align with this level of complexity for you? So I, the one takeaway I have from doing this show is that I no longer understand what those terms mean. <laughs> um, We're getting dumber as we go. Yeah, no, they, <laughs> they just have less value to me. Um, so a couple couple things that I will kind of describe what I like and if that's rules light or rules heavy you guys can figure it out so things that I like are conserved mechanics right a single core mechanic that is consistently reused in order to um, accomplish like the variety of situations that need to be addressed in the game Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't have a ton of edge cases that I need to keep in mind or reference or look up Um, And I like games that are very centered on their core activity that have a specific purpose and specific story that they're trying to tell um, and that everything is driven towards that purpose. Um, So I don't know if that's rules light or rules heavy. I suspect it's somewhere in the middle. Um, But I think focused is what I actually look for most in terms of mechanics because if everything is feeding into driving that kind of storytelling, then... I don't really have to grasp about for help. I can kind of intuit what should be coming in the system. Mm, it makes it easier to improv. Yeah. yeah. And, and less prep for me is always good. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting that you phrase it that way. I think that's a good way of putting it because probably before we started this podcast, I would have identified myself as rules heavy. Like same, I, same. I'm, I'm a rules memorizer. Yes. 
Um, yes, I used to really enjoy reading technical manuals for games. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and now, like, I think I fall sort of on both ends of the spectrum, but not in the middle. Where, like, I like that, you know, you can high jump your strength modifier plus three feet. And, like, the, there is a formula for that in 5th edition D&D. If you have a running jump, but it's half of that if you don't have a running start of at least 10 feet. I also really like where you just abstract it. You know, where you don't need to, like, do the math to figure out if you jump 11 or 12 feet up to, like, catch into a ledge. You just, like, roll a die to figure out if you succeed or succeed with a cost. Mm -hmm. Which is why, like, I love I love playing Blades in the Dark because it is so freeing in terms of, like, let's figure out together what happens here. At the same time, when I'm running something like 5e, I like that I can just smooth it over, just to abstract that, right? Like, hey, you're strong. Yeah, you make this jump. No problem. Yep. And like that's not something the rules really allow you to do, but once you like know the system, then you can just go with it. And then lastly, Roman says, love your show, guys. Been listening since episode three, but Shane, turns out episode three was also episode one. Yeah, so dirty little secret. We actually released all three episodes and episode zero at the same time because uh, we felt like people would be more into the show if they liked the first episode and they already had a second one to listen to. Um, so if you've been listening since episode three, you're actually an a, like an original episode one listener. Don't don't worry about that. Yeah, you're OG TPT. Mm -hmm. We need like some sort of pin or something some like that. Some badge or something. <laughs> right. Maybe a Discord thing. Right. All right. From one original listener, from one OGTPT-er to another, this one is from Len, who has been listening since the very beginning. Len says, congratulations on episode 200. Back in 2017, you blew me away when you said it takes 8 to 12 hours to make an episode. It takes fewer hours now because we are lazier. I don't know that that actually is true. If you oh, count, actually, man hours, you're right. You count man hours, mm -hmm, right? Because mm -hmm. we both have to be here to record. One Do of we? us has to prep it and one of us has to edit it. I still think it, it's minimum 8 hours. No, you're right. Yeah. Bah, Sorry. That really drops our pay per, ep per episode. Yeah, it's zero. <laughs> like, we appreciate Patreon, but oh boy. I mean, according to the IRS, we lost a bunch of money on this podcast this year. I mean, according to my bank account, we lost a bunch of money on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> All right. So by those numbers, you spent between 1,600 and 2,400 hours. Oh, God. Making this show. The time you put in really shows. That's good. Except in this episode, because Shane, I don't think you're editing this one very much. Uh, it's going to be lightly edited. Yeah. There are very few RPG podcasts of this caliber and quality. Well, not this episode. You know what? Give the people what they want. All right. Len continues. So here's my question. I'm starting a West Marches style campaign set in Zendrick. One, that sounds awesome. Traveling through Zendrick is famously complicated by the Traveler's Curse. So for those of you who don't know, there was a curse levied on the entire continent where like, you just can't get where you want to go without problems. Uh, also, a large groups of people eventually go insane so that you can't rebuild a civilization. Right. So what are some fun ways to use the Traveler's Curse and non-linear time and space in a West Marches campaign? And what are some problems to watch out for? For example, in the West Marches, the further you go from town, usually the greater the danger and greater the reward. With the Traveler's Curse, you could unlock distant adventure sites simply by learning about them or, quote, earning the right to venture to them. What else? So, correct me if I'm wrong, but West March's style campaigns often have sort of a hex crawl element to them as well, right? Yeah, they're like the old school, hey, you start in a town, hey, here's plot seeds about a distant location where, like, the game takes place, but getting there is half the fun. So... I kind of like the idea, and 
this might be frustrating and it's not my campaign so i'm gonna recommend it <laughs> um if <laughs> if as you build these hexes what you actually build for them like instead of the known world what you have is a fixed table of results for that hmm. so you know something like a d6 and if if it's close to town right like five out of six times it is whatever it was the time they arrived um and then that one time out of six like it's something different nearby random whatever right and if you have a roll of six in a while then it'll be six right yeah um and as you go further from town those odds increase right so that oh yeah eventually to six out of six yeah yeah. exactly right so as you go six hexes from town Mm -hmm, it is mm -hmm. it is just unpredictable what you will find when you get there and you will have been through a lot of unpredictable stuff on the way there most likely because the jungles are ever shifting yeah i like that and then as you establish like a new base or you become more familiar with an area then you sort of like reset Mm -hmm. and one hex away from here is a one out of six right and of course like at some point they will need some type of macguffin that will protect them from the traveler's curse Right, so that they can kind of establish that secondary base to to rebaseline their you know jungle travel. Yeah, I like this. Like they are they're eventually getting accustomed to it in a way, or like the party is special, right? It, almost every party is special in some way, so you have some way of avoiding it. Or in uh, Morning Glory, you you had a guide, uh, Behemoth, yes. mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, a tiny book imp bound into a, a cup filled yes. with blood. Yeah, that, that you were always encouraged to drink from. Later became a hand. Uh yeah yeah actually a whole so arm did. <laughs> <laughs> sewing plot seeds um yeah I I like this idea because part of the allure of the West March's style of campaign is that exploration element that sort of like Indiana Jones like we are plotting our own red line mm-hmm. um like if you have one or even all of your players who are very invested in the hex map itself part of the adventure is them being able to like map it out and and figure it out and and i think you can introduce it so that you can typically return to places that you've been before um and like carve out a larger swath of like known areas and and it's a bit like the draconic prophecy like you can use the traveler's curse as a macguffin anytime you want to like throw a wrench in things um early on i like the d6 idea you know, who knows where you're going to go. We haven't explored the interior at all. Like, we have no idea what's in there. Yeah. Once they've mapped out a chunk of area, it is part part a reward for them to kind of know where they're going. So I would only use... I would make it much less random. Well, yeah, they need to get some way of fixing it over time. Like, eventually, they need to be able to fix parts of the map so that they're known. Right? Yeah. And I also like the idea of, like, like Lynn was saying, you sort of warp ahead to, like, areas that are above your pay grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know there's something there, or some ally, or some or some way, some ambush that you are able to overcome this task there. And eventually, you sort of connect the areas that you knew before. It's sort of like I don't know if you've ever read the subway in New York. Like you know the area around each subway stop, but you have no idea how they connect to each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly you're like, oh, I was I was a block away. Right. I, oh, that's so weird. <laughs> yes. But sometimes you come out of that subway stop and you still have no idea where you are, even though you've come here every single time. So that's that's how I feel about any time I go to a friend's house, you know, like because I know the way from the train to their apartment, but I don't know anything outside of their apartment, right? Like I know what's only on that that direct path. Right. You Uber there and you're like, I have no idea where we are. Well, Uber, at least I see things like when you come from the subway, like, you know, nothing. You come out of the wrong exit. Exactly. It's, oh, yeah. So lost. Literally. Like, if I if an exit is closed, sometimes I am, like, baffled as to where I am in the city. Anyway. 
I like the idea of jumping ahead uh, farther than where you need to be and maybe getting some information that you don't know what to do with right now or that you maybe might misinterpret that only becomes that only starts to make sense once you get sort of more lower level information. Mm -hmm. It's almost like getting a glimpse of like the end of the campaign, but it's just a snapshot and like you can't interpret all the information that you're seeing until you have more info. And then Glenn says, thanks for keeping us entertained for 200 Thursday morning commutes. But then he gets pedantic, of course. It's 198 Thursdays and two Fridays. So Len is officially our TPT stat keeper. Oh, yeah. Now, congratulations. Congrats. You, did it. you knew that we've been late twice. Uh, Shane, both of those times were your fault. Okay. Well, you could be <laughs> stat keeper too then. Oh, I am. I am. <laughs> All right. So our next question comes from Victoria, who is the DM of the Broadswords podcast. And... Uh, I will be joining Victoria and Michael at Gen Con this year again for our intro to DMing uh, panel that we're having. It's bright and early Thursday morning. Uh, there are still tickets available. We'll have a link in the show notes. But if you want to hear the three of us come talk about, um, you know, early stage DMing in D&D, &D, uh, we have that panel available. I can't believe I'm saying this, but it is a good panel. Even so, though you're on it. I joked around with Victoria. I was like, if you ever want to feel like unpopular be on a on a panel with Victoria because everybody <laughs> is excited to see her and nobody cares about the other two people on stage. <laughs> yeah. I showed up last year and I was like, hey, Victoria. Yeah, yeah she's really good. <laughs> Who are these guys? Actually, I like Michael. Who's yeah. this guy? Thanks. <laughs> All right. What so, does Victoria say? So Victoria asks... How would you go about introducing more collaborative storytelling to old school D&D &D players who have been taught that the DM is the story god? Whew. So first of all, you cut out the DM's pizza. That trope, that's out. You can touch the DM's pizza. Yeah, after you lick your fingers. <laughs> okay, well, well look, just hold on. Everyone at the table gets mono. Basic human decency isn't out the window yet. <laughs> We're, no, no, no. You take that pizza, you fold it, you slice the pizza, you fold it in half, you take a bite out of the center and you put it back. Oh my now God. it just has a circle in it. You're a terrorist. Yes, it's true. Um, so I think a couple couple things that might work. One is to play a literal story game, like not just you know what what gets called a story game like RPG, but something like Fiasco, right, or um, Mission Accomplished by Jeff Stormer. Um, those types of games that are very very light on actual mechanics and very very driven towards like kind of the improv story um if you play those types of games with old school gamers i think they will embrace sort of the zaniness and um sort of collaborative nature that is necessary to play like a lot of the modern style of campaigns yeah they feel a lot more like board games mm -hmm. well board games really they feel more like improv games right yeah, board card improv games. Okay. <laughs> code names, sure. Well, not code names. Yeah, the uh the dynamic at the table where people are just talking back and forth and one person isn't like making pronouncements. Wait, have you confused code names for a different game? Mm -mm, no, no. Code names the game where you have to say one word and a or say a one word clue and a number to try and get people to guess which cards on the table. Yeah, but the team who is trying to guess is like yelling back and forth at each other and trying to convince each other. No, no, that's a stupid idea. Well, don't pick that one. No. Is that storytelling though? Uh, it, it's it's the dynamic of it. Okay. That people are more used to these days. 
All right. Like, it's not like Monopoly. Well, no, I guess it's more like old school Monopoly and not, not like Uno. I. All right. How is that like Fiasco, though? Uh, people are yelling at each other. <laughs> but, but Fiasco, you're telling a story. And, ev- and eventually, at the end, you blame someone. <laughs> so, so the value of doing this as Fiasco, right, is just that you have a story goal in mind that's set at the beginning or, you know, that's determined in the scene um, that you're told that you have to work towards and you, you don't get to really negotiate that, right? So part of your character's outcome is just out of your hands, um, but it's not out of the group's hands. Um, and that's like the dynamic of having like a GM-less game that I think most old school DMs need to get their head around is like they don't have the full narrative control that maybe was implied in earlier editions. Yeah, like the the weak link here is the GM. Like that's the person that you need to convince because if you start handing narrative control to old school players, they will eventually pick it up and and run with it. I mean, they were kind of doing that anyway because like there is that trope of arguing with the GM, you know. And sure, like if you believe that the GM is God, then once they make their pronouncement, that's fine. But until they make their pronouncement, you were pushing as hard as you can. So that, uh, you know, your polymorph happens to work on, like, a door, even though it only targets creatures. Right. Uh, it's, the, it's the GM who has to learn to let go. And I think part of that is having them be a player in a game where they can see another GM let go. Or, like, offer the, the story baton to other people, sort of, like, magnanimously and loudly. Yeah, so in that case, there might be some micro behaviors that work, too, right? Like... I think an old school thing was always narrate your kill, right? Like, what does it look like when you kill this monster? But you can kind of apply that principle to other activities in the game where you're giving a little more narrative control. So, like, cool, so you open the room, it's a tavern. Like, what is the one thing that you notice in the, like, that stands out in this tavern room? Yeah, um, Phoenix Dawn Command has the idea of the torch. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, I think that actually would that's a concept that works really well for old school gamers because the idea is like there's a list of things in the scene that you can interact with there are either objects or you know feelings senses uh, that you incorporate into your description or your action and you get a plus two bonus uh, old school gamers all want that plus two bonus that's a that's a really good point yeah GMs like the idea that like you got something concrete and you're not just like making something up like the gm comes up with the torch right here are the things on the torch here are your options for interacting well uh, so but you sort of decide how you interact with it well so the the gm usually like the torch comes with like two or three items on it and then you're supposed to pass it around the table and everybody adds to it oh even better yeah so yeah so like the players create their own thing that they want to interact with in the scene right there's a gun on the mantle exactly <laughs> perfect <laughs> There's a BFG 9000. <laughs> Good. I'm also writing Baylor on this torch. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. All right. Next question comes from Nick. I really only have two questions for you. One. Let's start with one. What is the goofiest character you have ever made? Shane. I mean, we've made a lot of characters. I Yeah. I mean, you just have to go through the character creation forge for some of those ideas um oh boy the smite biter is pretty goofy smite biter is pretty great yeah so that was the lizard folk paladin who uses his bite attack and smites on it to do just massive damage yeah just divine teeth Mm -hmm. um 
I would have to say the dilettante. Yeah, that was, that's one <laughs> Which, at least one level of everything. Right. Dumb. It was, but it's actually a really effective character. So dumb. <laughs> it uh, it punches and smites a lot. Uh, the only the only thing that wasn't all that useful was the monk, the single monk level. But you know, in a real game, if you are thrown in jail and and have nothing, you can still defend yourself. So I liked it. Uh, the follow up. What is the goofiest character you have ever played? Shane, and you've played a lot of goofy characters. I have seen them. I have one in mind for you. Um, I want to see if you pick the same one. Oh, boy. Yeah. I, I mean, I just want to hear your answer then. Oh, but th- I think it'll... Okay, okay. Mine is Quinn. Yeah, you're, yeah. Quinn was real dumb. <laughs> Quinn was goofy. Quinn was amazing and probably OP. You're right. Yeah. So now I know exactly what you're going to say for <laughs> me. And you're right. You, you've jogged my memory. <laughs> All right. So Quinn was a character I built over the course of three weeks because that's how long it took to build a character in Eclipse Phase First Edition. Uh, Quinn was four people. He was Quinn, the async with psychic powers, and Quinn, his chaos warfare AI named Quinn, and Quinn, his muse who had additional skill software named Quinn, and Quinn, his beta fork who lived in his brain uh, named Quinn. And Quinn hated Quinn, but Quinn was actually kind of okay with Quinn because they got along, but Quinn was really the one who was in charge. And they all lived inside a six-foot-tall lithium-colored shape-changing capsule that would fly and had a 3D printer built inside. Also a plasma rifle. (laughs) Great. That was Quinn. (laughs) What about you? So I know what you want me to say here. and I I don't want you to say that. So you you did jog my memory. uh, And and my character in that Eclipse Phase game was Coney Kong, Mm -hmm. uh, who was a Russian space ape Mm -hmm. that uh, ended up being uplifted and then became a uh, Russian-accented crime boss. Basically smart um, Moscow Mafia Donkey Kong. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And Coney Kong 2012 was his name because I believe we were playing in 2012 i think so and he was running for president (laughs) that was a meme on the internet of the time and Uh, that was sort of the idea with this character is he had been like cryogenically frozen and then uplifted and so his whole basis of reference was from the 90s to 2000s um that was a very dumb and goofy character i would say actually as an npc i played a lot of ront who was Mm. the um orc who was um trapped with you by the Dark Eldar in the beginning of the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign who later went onto your ship um, under the promise of you eventually making him a free Buddha by finding him a ship and a crew and sending him on his way. Um, he was also an extremely goofy character. He was way too interested in our teeth. He was just obsessed with teeth because he's a, he's a free Buddha. I mean, that's what they do. They want they want money. Um, and teeth are... Orc money. Yeah, we got an, a limited number of those. Yeah, so I think I think he was a pretty goofy character too, and and less on the meme scale. <laughs> All right, so our last question of the mailbag. Wow, this one comes from Andrew, aka Magnor Creole, in our TPT Discord. Link in the show notes. So Andrew asks, "What is something interesting you guys have learned about Fifth Edition?" 
classes, spells, skills, feats, etc. Maybe any special interaction you found or just things about building a character in general over the course of doing 199 character creation forges. Huh. Um, Warlock is overpowered. There are, or maybe just super flexible. I think 50% of the builds that we have made include Warlock in some way because Mm -hmm. that is the best way to get an iconic ability of some kind. Mm -hmm. Um, Most feats are garbage. Mm -hmm. Um, Half-elves are awesome. Mm-hmm. But variant humans are awesomer. Yeah. So I agree. I, I I have more design-oriented things. One, I think the Warlock is about the worst design class um, because it has too many, like, cross-sections of variables in it. Which makes it great for the Forge. Which is why we yeah. like it so much in the Forge. But as a single class, it is so lost in itself, right? Like, between... The spell selection, the pact selection, the patron selection, and then also all of the invocations that you have to choose through. Like, it, it, it is a class that has got too much variety to have any real flavor. Right, it's a fourth dimensional class. Uh, fifth, even. <laughs> it, like, it's silly. Um, I, I, I really hate the Warlock. And any, like, I, now, you can tell when I build a character creation forge because i almost always just avoid warlock because i don't want to wade into the complicated mess of the class oh give me warlock yeah i i really like i some of my favorite builds we did like the gambler was very warlock oriented and and i just i really don't like warlock in fifth edition anymore um i I think it really violates a lot of the kind of core design principles of fifth edition um and then the second thing that i have observed is that while it appears simple on its surface uh, and I think that's true for martial classes. I think spell casting is still such a complicated layer over the top of class balance. Like it's it's really frustrating because um, you really don't understand the power level of a class until you dig into the minutia of its spell list mm-hmm. um, and, and understand exactly how those spells work and how they interact with other spells and how they interact with other classes and and monsters and and just various things so to like it has made me appreciate how rules heavy fifth edition is despite kind of i don't know if you remember this claim that like the basic rules for D fifth edition are 26 pages and that's all you need and like while that's true that is also a gross misstatement of what the system actually is yeah like if you think about like when we're building forge characters, I think a lot of times we'll have an idea for a character and they'll be like, oh, we can't do that because that's just spell selection, mm-hmm. you know, because spell selection is that important in defining who your character is. You can be, you know, a thousand different kinds of wizard 20. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I mean, I came from the old school. I skipped fourth edition. So the idea of spell lists and spell selection, like that was something that was kind of already native to me and one of the things that made fourth edition impenetrable is just the idea of like going through and having to track over a series of eight pages like how all these different choices flow together right so i think fourth edition had the design right and had the layout wrong whereas like going back to the fifth edition and older edition model of just spell lists and a long encyclopedia of spells like that feels like such a regression to me, having seen how the system now plays. 
So I don't know. That that's my frustration. Uh D and D in general, <laughs> I guess, is the answer. <laughs> I learned what D and D was. All right, question two from Andrew. What other podcasts, both general advice casts like Total Party Thrill or Tabletop Battle and actual plays like God's Fall or Adventure Zone and or other tabletop RPG media do you consume? So why don't you answer this first? Because I know it'll be a much shorter list for you. That's very true. I don't listen to a ton of other stuff. I listen to Sism Mastery. Um, they review old RPGs, which are mostly garbage. Uh, they do Expanded Universe, which is reviews of old um, Star Trek, exp- uh, sorry, Star Wars Expanded uh, Universe novels speaking of star trek i listened to um seven of wine which is uh two women reviewing an episode of star trek voyager while also reviewing a bottle of wine and so they basically do our mailbag episode every episode oh nice yeah i know it's pretty good i don't know if they're doing a ton of it all the time uh, i listened to uh Weld, the young justice files by friend of the show rich howard uh and emily booza um, which is a discussion and review show on um, uh, Young Justice, the DC superhero Teen Titans-ish TV show. There's a couple other things I can't think of right now because I'm deep in my tequila cup. Shane, you go, and I'm sure I'll come up with some other stuff. Um, okay, so as far as discussion podcasts are concerned, I also listen to System Mastery. Um, I also... Let's see. I have a lot of shows that I kind of subscribe to, but I don't always catch every single episode. Um, so I don't want to necessarily like call that out as I look through my subscription list, but just some other shows that I do have subscribed that uh, I listen to regularly. Uh, I listen to the RPG Academy. I listen to the Grimdark podcast, which is 40K role-playing oriented. I listen to Ken and Robin talk about stuff. And then in terms of actual play, I am... I really I struggle with actual play uh to be honest like I I think I have a very unique um preference there like I I really struggle with things that meander and feel like people playing a game at a table I like more of the audio drama kind of aspect of it so um I like shows like Neo Scum I like Campaign um I listen to most of the PAX episodes of Acquisitions Incorporated um, cause I, I really think Pat Rothfuss is just hilarious. Um, let's see what else for actual plays. Uh, oh, I, I do listen to the adventure zone. I haven't listened to God's fall. Um, I probably should pick that up. I've, I've heard, heard good things about God's fall, but I haven't listened either yet. Yeah. Um, like I, I tune into streams sometimes. So, uh, a lot of times I will, um, put on either the venture maidens or the broadswords when they're streaming. Like I'll just listen to that in the background. Um, you know, a lot of times I listen to shows cause I like the people on it more so than necessarily like following along every single episode. Um, so yeah, that's the stuff that I have subscribed anyway. Yeah. And we should give a shout out to uh, manifest zone, which is Keith Baker's Eberron podcast, which comes out on a random schedule. Yeah. <laughs> It comes out whenever it comes out. Yeah, it's a bit like his uh, Dragon Marks. Right. All right, next up. Is there anything from previous editions that you'd like to see in 5e that hasn't made it yet? Classes, prestige classes, spells, magic items, alternate systems like 3.5's Incarnum or Pack Binding, or Martial Disciplines? I 100% want to see some kind of Tome of Battle type thing. We got a, a peek at it from Battlemaster. I would love uh, an expansion of uh, martial maneuvers. 
Um, I liked prestige classes. I know they were problematic from a design standpoint, mm-hmm. but I, I actually thought they were really cool. Um, I would be fine playing a game that had no multi-classing, but did have prestige classes if the prestige classes were cool. Um, I, I don't like the combination of the two, but I think that would actually be a, a really neat campaign. And we did that sort of in our epic destinies that were kind of bolted on abilities to our high level characters in Eberron. Right. Um, like I, I thought that really helped round out my character and make it feel unique, uh, which is what I liked from prestige classes. Mm. Yeah. I think my biggest concern would be that it uh, makes the high level abilities of subclasses less interesting, but I don't know that people really look at those or use those because either people don't get that high in level or like you multi-class yeah so like if a prestige class was basically just another kind of multi-class it works i think that would work perfectly fine i liked the idea of i like the idea of incarnum but i'd be fine if it didn't come back i would like to see true names come back mainly because in third edition they were completely broken and didn't work at all because Mm -hmm. the more levels you gained in true namer the worse you were at true naming because someone didn't do the math properly the dcs rose higher than your skill yeah well so yeah i would love uh, some sort of like small subsystem where um you're using true names and we have a tiny bit of that in some of these like summon demon spells but yeah more codified would be cool uh in terms of alternative systems um some of the books that i really really liked in third edition that i still reference in fifth edition are things like Stormrack or mm-hmm. uh what is the frostburn frostburn and sand something? Uh, sandstorm sandstorm yeah Da-da-da-da-da. anyway those books i think are really cool because they were just kind of guidebooks to adventuring in these specific environmental locales um they were sort of a combination of rule supplement and a little bit of player option and a lot of kind of lore supplement for these environments yeah absolutely things like complete adventurer which is just like hey things to consider when you're dungeon delving you know uh either here are the monsters you might look for or like here's all the stuff that you should bring why don't you have oil it's lubrication Mm. duh yeah so shane oh my god i think that's all the questions that we have yeah i boy 200 episodes huh that's uh that's a lot of episodes i did not expect that we would have this many episodes or questions (laughs) no No. I mean, I thought we would pod fade long before this. Yeah, but I had hoped so. So um, any last shout outs or things to to mention before we move on? Yeah, I mean, I want to thank everyone on uh, Discord. There are a bunch of people who are picking up the reins and, you know, uh, introducing themselves to all the new people, welcoming, welcoming them all, having interesting conversations when Shane and I aren't around, which is... Well, having more interesting conversations when we aren't we aren't around, <laughs> because the conversations get less interesting once we actually show up, and we're like, "Hey, hi guys, was you interested in hearing something we already said on the show?" <laughs> so, very much appreciate that. I also want to say thank you to uh, all of our Patreon supporters. Um, I am continuing continually shocked that anyone gives us money for this, but like a lot of you do, and it's really touching and nice um so thank you for you know being really obvious with liking the show yeah and if you've if you've backed patreon in the in 2019 um there have been a lot of people who 
have supported us this year. Um, obviously, we, we love all the people who have been supporting us for a long time. But 2019, uh, kind of apropos of nothing, um, I guess just a lot of people felt like they were able to or, or needed to support us. And that has been amazing to see. Um, like, I, I know the one thing that we have owed for about six years now like longer than we've had this podcast was the super cut of morning glory and oh, everybody yeah. asks about it uh-huh. and um i i it's on record now it is 17 hours of audio <laughs> it is a bear to edit uh it is in progress and it is the biggest mistake we ever made in patreon <laughs> oh yeah making it the like the 100 level <laughs> yes yeah it should have been the 300 <laughs> uh, it's so dumb and it's so much work to get it done we are working on it it is totally a thing that will come someday uh if you have ever backed us you will get a copy of this i promise oh god absolutely um, also it should have really been the answer to you know the question about hey are there any notes from the morning glory campaign because oh. like they're all in the commentary on morning glory right yeah so yeah there's that um so anyway yeah thank you for all of that um just another cool thing for me personally um i have the first product that my name is in uh came out on the dms guild recently like last week um it is the art of war for D players um it is by mt black um he reached out to us uh listens to the show he's a dms guild adept which means he writes a ton of stuff on the dms guild um but he reached out he was working on this book and had said hey could you give it a read and i ended up writing um a section or two of it um giving some notes so um i thank mt for letting me be a part of it and then also if anybody is interested in it it takes lessons from sun tzu's art of war and kind of adapts it to the tactical and sort of game elements of DD, um all with kind of a fun and light tone um it's a i don't know it's like probably 80 or 90 pages it's a relatively quick read but it should be fun it's weird that we're involved in other things. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's always strange when that happens. But great. You're like, oh, you wrote a book? Huh. It's like, well, I didn't really write it, but, you know, like my name is in it. So, I don't know. Reach out. Let us know. Um, And, yeah, I guess just more broadly, like, thank you for sticking with us for 200 episodes. And we'll – I cannot wait to see what happens next. Um, We don't have a big announcement for this milestone episode, um, but – I'm sure something exciting will be coming soon. Like it, it, things are always changing around here. Right. There's always like too much in the works, <laughs> but you know, we'll keep you apprised of everything that's happening and hope to like literally see a lot of you soon in person. Cause we'll be around at places. Yeah. We'll be at Gen Con 2019 for sure. And uh, I will also once again, be at a catacon this year. So if you're planning to go to either of those, let us know. We should meet up. Also, we live in New York. So, you know, let us know. All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? That is us not answering the door because people took us up on the offer to come visit us in New York. All right. Well, let's move on to the character creation forge and find somebody to defend our door. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And as mentioned, don't forget to join our Discord. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Iron GM LLC. 
Uh, Iron GM is the creator of the Grimmer Space Kickstarter, which is now live. It's bullets versus fireballs against a backdrop of alien horrors. What wins in bullets versus fireballs? Um, lava. It's true. I think in Star Wars, for example, the reason that slug throwers work against Jedi is that when you try to deflect them with a lightsaber, all that happens is that you get hit with a slug of molten lead. Right. (laughs) So this sci-fi horror Starfinder setting comes from award-winning game designers Lou Agresta and Roan Barton. It was developed by actor Sean Astin of Lord of the Rings and Stranger Things. Actor Sean Astin of the Goonies. Actor Sean Astin of Rudy. (laughs) Yes, also true. So the citizens of Grimmer Space are veterans when it comes to fighting alien abominations from the depths. Yeah, they're almost like uh, those uh, catechins. What are my my psychic iguanodons? (laughs) Death World Rambos. (laughs) Yep. There are evil sunder mages, which are near immortal demigods of sorcery. They ripped into the cosmos pretty recently through a vast purple tear in space-time called the Seath. As the Seath is leaking magic into their galaxy for the very first time, the Sunder Mages plot to conquer the five distinct technological civilizations of Grimmer Space from the Shadows. Soon, science and magic will come to world-ending blows. From the Shadows, much like my psychic iguanodon. <laughs> okay. You can find out more and check out the Kickstarter at GrimmerSpace.com. So this week, in the Character Creation Forge, we are building, finally, because it has been on the list for a very long time, the Modern Major General. Shane, who's the Modern Major General? Apparently, (laughs) (laughs) it is a character from the Pirates of Penzance, a 1879 Gilbert and Sullivan comic opera. Yes, that is correct, and I'm glad you knew that off the top of your head. I didn't read that from the notes at all. (laughs) You didn't have to play YouTube for me earlier. Um, If you don't know, well, you do know because you've definitely heard this song or some parody of it um, that has been made sometime in the past 130 years. 40 years? 140 years. Yeah, it's getting there. Yeah. Um. So the modern major general is uh, one of the main characters from Pirates of Penzance. He is, in fact, a major general in uh, the British Army. Oh, okay. And uh, at first, he does not want to let uh, one of his daughters marry a pirate, but later he relents because, you know, he's an all-around good guy. In his introduction, he sings a very fast song detailing all the things that he is extraordinarily good at. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So I, I'm guessing we're going to... Find out what those are. And oh, find yeah. It. Okay, cool. What's the build? It is Mastermind Rogue 13, Ranger 1, Kensei Monk 6. So for background, we're going to pick Soldier because, of course, the modern Major General has an actual military rank. It is Major General, which is a two-star general, equivalent in rank to a rear admiral in the Navy. Uh, and, of course, at the end of the opera, the modern Major General uses his rank. He pulls rank, in fact, uh, at the very end, to pardon the pirates. Uh, this is probably the only character creation forge character that we have built that is as much defined by what they can't do as what they can do, because the first like three quarters of the song is him detailing all the things he's very good at, and the last quarter is him being like, "By the way, I'm terrible at quite a few things that you should know about, but I'm probably going to get better at them." 
because he's supposed to be a parody of like the the like uh, cloistered um, scholared officer class mm-hmm. who definitely doesn't actually have any experience in the field. Well, because the British Army, you could purchase a you could purchase your commission to be an officer. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, so yeah. just being rich enough made you a general. Yeah, or perhaps it was just hereditary and like you begin as an officer. Mm-hmm. So. He notes specifically that he can't distinguish a gun from a spear, right? He can't tell at sight a Mauser rifle from a javelin. Uh, now, if you are playing uh, in a Victorian-era campaign, I would say that a that firearms are going to be martial weapon proficiency because why would you not know how to use a gun if you like are in the trenches at all? Yes? You, you feel me? Mm-hmm. Okay. So... From this, we know that the modern major general has no proficiency in martial weapons. Otherwise, he would know what a firearm, look, what a rifle looks like and how to use it. At the same time, he shows no aptitude for magic. There is nothing in his song that says anything about casting spells. Okay. So that means that most melee classes or spell tech, spell casting classes are completely out. We can't use any of them. All right. Fortunately, however, the ranger actually doesn't get any weapon proficiencies when you multiclass into it. Which means that if we are a rogue and we multiclass into ranger and we multiclass into monk, we still do not have martial weapon proficiencies. Okay. (laughs) I see what you've done. (laughs) Nor can we cast any spells because, of course, ranger gets that at level two. Right. Okay. (laughs) So did we say the build? Yeah, yeah, we did. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So how much how, how are your how's your tequila doing? Oh, your tequila's doing pretty good. That's good. I, I've lost. Okay, fine. What what do, <laughs> what do we, we get? get from Rogue? Yeah, Shane. What Thir- do we get from Rogue? Thirteen levels of Mastermind Rogue. We get sixty six sneak attack. We get cutting action. Of course, we'll have four expertises, which you insist we waste on performance and history. He very specifically says that he can quote in elegiacs. Okay, which is performance poetry. It was the poetry slam of the day. Okay. He knows the croaking chorus from the Frogs of Aristophanes, which is, uh, at this point, 2,000 years old. No, sorry, 2,500 years old. He can whistle all the songs from HMS Pinafore, which is another comic opera that came out. And that's like 28 songs, okay? okay. He's good at performance. He can do this. And then I guess he can, what, list the kings of England? Uh-huh. Can you list the kings of England? Not, That's oh, because you are not trained in history. I can't even name the current king of England. <laughs> Boris Johnson? Is that how that works? <laughs> uh, yes, he can also quote the fights historical, and he lists all the crimes of Heliogobulus, or at least he is able to list the crimes of Heliogobulus. Which, as you know, listeners, is many. Yeah, oh God, so many in his very short reign before he was assassinated by his grandmother. I looked that up, thanks Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. I don't have training in history. He'll also be able to use help at 30 feet, and Mastermind gives him two additional languages, one of which, of course, will be ancient Babylonian since he can write a washing bill in Babylonic cuneiform. Okay. He had to get an additional language because nobody starts with Babylon, with ancient Babylonian, right? right? It's yeah. not available at character creation. Yeah, it's got yeah. to take like Aramaic first. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, he'll also, as a rogue, get uncanny dodge, evasion, and reliable talent, so he effectively can't roll worse than a 10. And he'll get insightful manipulator from Mastermind. Uh, that allows him to look at an opponent... And figure out some things about uh, them, which, of course, he uses when he recognizes who the pirates are. They are, of course, the pirates of Penzance. And he knows that they have a reputation for not killing orphans because they are themselves orphans, Mm. which he uses to his advantage by claiming 
erroneously to be an orphan so that he is not killed. Okay. Smart man. Then we have a level of ranger from which we will get an extra skill. Uh, and as you mentioned, no weapon proficiencies and no spellcasting. Ooh, thanks, ranger. <laughs> I guess we'll take favorite enemy pirates. Why would we not do that? Why would we not do that? And for natural explorer, we'll take coast. Right. How else will you hunt on pirates? Now, do not take forest, grassland, or mountain. Why not? Because he says that he cannot distinguish a mammalon, which is a rounded hill, okay, from a ravelin, which oh. is a triangular-shaped built fort. Same. <laughs> right, which is why you don't have natural explorer, forest, grassland, or mountain. Underdark, fine. Swamp, cool. Watch out for the iguanodons. Right. Okay, great. Now, from Monk, we'll have our usual unarmored defense. And that, if, that guy's never wearing armor. Yeah, I mean, of course. Like, uh, nobody wears armor in the late 19th century. Right? Uh, medals don't count as armor. Uh, you'll also have your flurry of blows, deflect missiles, uh, extra attack, and you can spend key points for stunning strike. To be fair, we don't see him use these abilities in the opera, but we don't see him not use them. Oh, okay. No dis- he, he didn't claim that he couldn't, That's so it right. must be true. That's right. <laughs> disclaimed everything else. Uh, you'll get a Kensei weapon. Also, you get Way of the Brush, which, which gives you proficiency in painter supplies. And now, if you look at Xanathar's Guide to Everything, you can use proficiency in painter supplies combined with a proficiency in investigation to identify paintings, which he specifically says he can do because he can tell Raphael's from Gerodau's and Zophanes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> lovely. So, uh, do we need any feats? Uh, anything except for alertness. Okay. Because he's very clearly says he is not wary of surprises. Great. That is a thing to be proud of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as for skills and tools, he says he is the very model of a modern major general with information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. That's a lot. So nature? Oh, I think, I think nature fits very well for animal. I mean, I think and for, vegetable. <laughs> I think for vegetable, we should, we should have him take the herbalism kit. Okay. I think that's that's important. And the mineral, I'm going to go with jeweler's tools oh. because what is more mineral than gems? That's fair. Uh, he is very, uh, he has a lot of skill with math, uh, conics, quadratics. He talks about integral and differential calculus. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know. How do you feel about this? I think in a D&D setting, the closest you're going to get to math is arcana. Okay, I'll buy it. Right? I mean, we could give him an abacus, but I think that's two gold pieces and no proficiency. <laughs> so, like, every, anyone could have that. Right. Uh, and just so you know, he specifically says he has no idea what a commissariat is. Oh. Yeah. So, it's not 40K. No political leanings, I guess? None at all. Okay. He's really bad at this. Great. Lastly, he needs to have, um, I would say, perhaps expertise in deception because... A lot of the things he says about himself actually are definitely lies. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, he says he can hum a fugue. Uh, a fugue is a musical composition with multiple parts. So unless he's a tuvan throat singer, he is not humming that fugue. Well, you don't know. Hey, I played a symphony the other day. Just me. Okay. Uh, also, he says that he can uh, tell you every piece of Caractacus's uniform. Caractacus, of course, just wore a loincloth. So that is not a big deal. Okay. Well, I was impressed. But uh, yeah, but that's because he's very good at deception. He deceived me, yeah. <laughs> all right. In terms of leveling order, we will start uh, with the traditional Rogue One. We'll take all of our six levels of Monk, then we'll multi-class into Ranger, and then finish out Rogue. 
All right, before we wrap up, let's take a moment and say thank you once again to our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. All right, so what do we have planned for next week's episode? Well, we're continuing our series on how to play non-human characters, and we are talking about playing goblins. I agreed to that? Yes, yep, yeah, you did. You're doing goblins. Before tequila? uh strangely yes all right well find out what happens uh what are we doing in the character creation forge uh we're building the bugbear bear i'm building the bugbear bear. <laughs> yes you again agreed to that early on i wanted to call it the polar bugbear but uh, you know you were like no all right well somebody find uh an excuse for anna anna june so i don't want to do these all right <laughs> anyway <laughs> that's it for episode 200 of total party thrill i hope we lived up to our name but either way i'm shane and i'm ishan Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is also brought to you by D&D Beyond. D&D Beyond is a digital resource for D&D 5th edition. You know, you can use D&D Beyond, uh, log in, use the free account. You can make a bunch of characters, uh, play around to see what's the optimal thing to do in your current game. Um, you can take a look at the rules compendium to figure out uh, that you've been playing uh, grappling totally wrong, mm-hmm. but so is everyone else, so it's totally fine. No, it, it is... Yes, you could do all of those things. <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, and, and in fact, like, one of the cool things about the character uh, creator or, like, the, the character sheet after you've created your character is it just lists all those basic actions um, in one of the segments. So if you click them, it just pops up, like, a little overlay that tells you exactly what grappling is or exactly what um the aid action is yeah i hate to tell you shane but all of your actions are hashtag basic yeah okay thanks sorry dude um i and actually like it takes no time to build a character quickly i mean there's like a random button where it just like goes blah, blah, blah and here's a character yeah oh. if you really want uh, yeah you could totally do that hey tom <laughs> i guess you're playing dcc right exactly <laughs> so it's got that and lots of other awesome content for free the basic rules for D&D, it's got articles from writers like James J. Hake and videos from people like Todd Kenrick. And the team is always updating the site with new features, so there are constant improvements uh, to the, the platform. They're always like making little tweaks and updates. The The user experience is constantly improving. There's always little like buttons that are appearing or you know like little things that are just working a little more smoothly so it's a it's a well-supported platform as well yeah i keep logging on and being like ah that's a new thing what's what is that what is that doing there oh oh that's interesting i like that that's good that is exactly what i thought i wanted last week and now it's here huh i was just complaining about how i couldn't do that thing um but it turns out i didn't do enough research and so i've been complaining for weeks for no reason exactly yeah story of my life so i i actually got the opportunity i've been using D beyond in our home game to play a druid but more recently victoria over this weekend just uh was like hey let's hop on like i've got some free time do you want to play just like a quick pickup D game and i was like okay fine i'm just sitting here painting minis anyway like let's play D too um and she's like cool roll up a fifth level character in D beyond here's the link and i was like all right fine 10 minutes later here i am with my fifth level character ready to go uh and we are playing our stupid half orc adventure in no time it wasn't a warlock was it a warlock it was not it was a i went half orc barbarian what was that half orc warlock wow shane <laughs> yeah that's, yeah that's 
Typecasting, am I right? D&D Beyond, even for warlocks. <laughs> Especially for warlocks. All right, so you can check out D&D Beyond at www.dndbeyond.com.